Hey everybody, how y'all doing? I'm Michael. I'm joined by Alex as always. How's it going? And we're here with another episode of Falling Through Plot Holes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. Alex, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling good. Uh, doing well. Been playing uh, Fashion Police Squad, been playing Multiverses, been playing Guilty Gear, just oh. uh, liking video games. After this, you're going to have to tell me about Fashion Police Squad because that sounds fantastic. Oh, it's great. I am already intrigued by it as a person who's a fan of style savvy. Um, mm-hmm. So, yes, I yeah, that sounds really, really rad. I, I'm doing pretty good myself uh, in my continuing efforts to make myself as unprepared physically for a one to two hour podcast. Uh, you know, ended up having three drinks last night and then immediately got up and ran uh, five and a half miles up and up a hill. So, wow. Yeah. So I'm very tired, which means yeah. it is the perfect time to talk about uh, one of our one of our topics that's part of my hell list. Because we oh, are good. Oh, yes. We're going to have a nice three to four parter coming up for everybody today. And I'm incredibly, incredibly excited about this one because it's maybe one of my favorite games of my childhood uh, that mm. goes really badly really quickly. <laughs> but before we jump into that, Alex, uh, this is going to be a bit of an aside, but trust me, it, it matters in the grand scheme of things. Okay. What's your opinion of Fortnite? We don't have time for me to go into it entirely, but in the short version, I think it is a fairly competent game. I think its development process is the most toxic thing I've ever heard of yeah. in video games. Um, I think its licensing is actually incredibly impressive. The amount of like just celebrity cameo crap they've managed to shove into that game is kind of mind-boggling. LeBron um, James doing Kamehameha's is yeah, like, just it's by a thing. itself. Yeah. Next to, like, Goku and the Predator. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it has killed Epic Games as a company that I once loved deep, dearly. Yeah, it's really shifted the trajectory of Epic quite a bit. And that's the reason why I find it so fascinating because you see, mm. Alex, uh, every once in a while, a game comes out that sort of changes everything forever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's usually roughly about every five to 10 years. We'll get something like that. And it's not really obvious from the outset, whether or not this right. game is actually going to do that. It's something we always find in retrospect. Um, right. Like just to, just to briefly touch on it. Fortnite was originally designed as a four player co-op zombie survival fort building game. Yeah. Um, and then Player Unknown's Battlegrounds came out as like the first popular battle royale, and Fortnite sort of jumped on that trend. And everyone initially looked at it and said, "Wow, that's a cool PUBG imitator." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, nowadays that is, I, although PUBG is probably still bigger just internationally, it's definitely not the case anymore. Right? Yeah. Apparently, PUBG is like really big in like Korea. Korea and China, yeah, and yeah. that by itself, I think, gives it technically a bigger user base than mm-hmm. Fortnite, which is kind of nuts. Right. But yeah, so, like, Fortnite kind of fits into this niche uh, in a way, or at least it appears to be well on this way. Like, uh, mm-hmm. to give you an example of games that do fit this niche, something like Call of Duty 4 kind mm-hmm. of fits this, where it redefined not only first-person shooters, but it also helped catapult an entirely different company into the limelight. The Xbox 360, I don't know if it necessarily becomes as prominent as it does if it doesn't have that exclusivity 
uh, mm-hmm. with you know Call of Duty Four, particular and like the later entries in the series when it comes to, like map hacks and whatnot. Right. Like it ended up being such a big deal that when the PlayStation Four came out, Sony went out of their way to make sure they could sign a deal to get those. Uh, what was like three months early or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and uh, like Destiny content as well. Yeah, exactly. Like it was one of they looked at that and said, "Okay, no, this is something we do need to do because that's mm-hmm. that ended up really changing the game for Microsoft in in many ways." And it's it's hard to say if Fortnite's necessarily going to have that same level of trajectory. Like it's obviously right. one of the biggest things around. It, it is a cultural touchstone in a way that um, that few games are. But it's it remains to be seen if it's going to help like the Epic Game Store overtake Steam as the right. digital marketplace, for instance. I definitely don't think that. If anything, I think it it has helped make mobile gaming a lot more legitimate in the U.S. and in Western markets. Yeah, it. It helped it break even more into the mainstream. Like mobile mm-hmm. games had always been big, like right. even before Fortnite came along. But there was a lot more people who used to be like poo-pooing it, like serious gamers. TM, right? Who were more willing to jump on that bandwagon once Fortnite, you know, started showing mm-hmm. up on iPhones and Android right. and whatnot. So, my point, of course, is that when this happens, it isn't just that this game is popular, sells a lot, is critically acclaimed, and whatnot. It literally changes the industry forever. Mm-hmm. And Alex, today we're going to be talking about the plot line of one of those games as we go back to 1997 and talk about a little RPG called Final Fantasy VII. All right, here we go. <laughs> Alex, you ever played Final Fantasy VII? I have. It's a good game. Hell of a game. Hell of a game. Hell of a game. What is the scope of this discussion going to be? Oh, buddy. <laughs> oh, it's all of it, isn't it? Oh yeah, you we're going to be talking about the, the dumb anime spin-off slash prequel. Like like that's oh, how deep we're yay. gonna be going into this. Oh boy. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be talking about mostly just Final Fantasy VII, the the first game today. Uh-huh. Uh but subsequent episodes, yeah, no, we're going to get into Avon Children. We're gonna get into Crisis Core, we're gonna get into the remake, we're gonna do all of that. All right, I can't wait to talk about Deep Ground. I yes, yeah, Deep Ground. Yeah, Soldier G. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. I hope you like Vincent. Hope you like quasi vampires and their fun anime sidekicks. So yeah, Final Fantasy VII is to say that it is incredibly important for video gaming as a whole would be an understatement. It right. Changed the trajectories of three separate companies. Uh mm-hmm. not only Square, the developers and publishers of the game but sony entertainment as Mm -hmm. well as nintendo like all three of those companies are going to go off in different directions because of the success of final fantasy 7 it's going to fundamentally change square's relationship with nintendo it is going to it's going to basically be one of the reasons why the playstation ended up being the best seller of its generation over the nintendo Mm -hmm. 64 yeah I, and it, it's it's basically going to start an arms race for, like, graphical fidelity. It is, yeah. In a way that you just really wouldn't expect at all. Or maybe you would expect it, but you wouldn't expect it from the JRPG or the Japanese right. role-playing game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the final thing about this. It's going to legitimize the role-playing game in the eyes of the mainstream in a mm-hmm. way that it 
had such trouble doing so, even with right. things like Dungeons and Dragons or uh, North American video games such as um, you know Wizardry or Ultima. Uh, there's been multiple sources I've read that actually credit the rise of Bioware to the success of Final Fantasy VII mm. in the sense of legitimizing their RPGs and mm-hmm. making it seem like, okay, well, no, it's actually cool to play these as well. Right. Now, before we get into Final Fantasy VII proper, I think it is important that we actually talk about the state of the JRPG and where it was as a genre in the 90s. Yeah, let's do that, because oh boy. Yeah, this is going to be a very short and truncated version of this. Like, Mm. this literally could be a podcast in and of itself. Uh, But to start from the very beginning, uh, the JRPG, just for those of you who are not familiar, the Japanese role-playing game, is a genre of video games that is defined by essentially you controlling a set of characters, uh, usually three at a time as they explore and fight their way through a game world in order to defeat some sort of big bad enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the games are less interactive than your typical video games. Think like your Super Mario Brothers that are platformers where you have essentially con- entire control of your character. Right. Uh, the control of your character is more abstracted through stats such as strength, defense, magic ability, and whatnot. And you give your players commands such as to attack, use a fire spell, use an item, and whatnot. As you defeat enemies, you gain experience points that make you more powerful and unlock more abilities. And you basically do this constant grind in order to make yourself slowly more and more powerful to advance through a game that usually is defined by a more um, a more elaborate story than what you would typically see in video games there. Mm. Uh, now, there's obviously variations to the JRPG formula, but that is more or less how that works out. Right. So the JRPG is a very popular genre in Japan around this time. Uh, Games such as Dragon Quest IV and Final Fantasy V, for instance, both released in the the early to mid-90s, sold in millions in Japan alone. A territory that, uh, you know, usually, like, if you sell roughly about one to two million copies in Japan, it's it's a pretty big success. Mm -hmm. Uh, To give you an example of, like, how successful, like, some of these games ended up being... Final Fantasy VI, which was released in 1994 for the Super Nintendo, uh, often regarded as one of the greatest games on the Super Nintendo platform, sold roughly about two and a half million copies over its lifespan in Japan alone. Uh, and that's Final Fantasy at the time was not the most popular JRPG series. That would be Dragon Quest. So that should just show right. you how popular these games could be. This wasn't the case in the United States, though. Mm-hmm. While critics often would list Square's games in particular as being some of the greatest of all time, uh, games such as Secret of Mana, uh, of course, Final Fantasy for and what have you, uh, this didn't translate to widespread commercial success. Going back to Final Fantasy VI, for instance, it sold 2.5 million copies in Japan, but over here in America, of actually internationally in general, it sold roughly about 860,000 copies. That's insane. Right? A game that, even to this day, people uh-huh. love, and a yeah. game that actually in Japan is not exactly regarded as one of the best Final Fantasies. Huh. <laughs> uh, oddly enough, um, not on a popularity list. They, they, all, they acknowledge this is a good game, but... Right. Yeah. That's kind of wild, because, like... M- m- Actually, I don't know if this is still up to date, but for a long time at least, Six was regarded as like the best Final Fantasy in the US, like even above Seven. It's often in the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, it totally is. 
And yeah, that really just goes to show, though, just how, like, just how, mm-hmm. like, um, how unpopular the JRPG was in the United States. Because once again, right. that 800,000 or so number, that's international. And around this time, South Korea was their second biggest market. Mm-hmm. So that, oh, wow. for all, I don't know how much it is. I, I could speculate maybe is half of that, 500,000 that may be mm-hmm. sold in the United States. Um, Hironobu Sakaguchi, the director and producer of the Final Fantasy series, is on the record as saying this was not a commercial success in the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, Final Fantasy wasn't the only JRPG series, though, that was having a hard time finding buyers in the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. Earthbound, Nintendo's RPG, for instance, <laughs> also did not sell well. And that was despite an incredibly heavy marketing push. Uh, right. including packing in a strategy guide into the box, making it bigger or more prominent on store shelves, mm-hmm. uh, and doing everything they possibly can to get this game to get get it sold in U.S. stores. Like, that didn't right. do well. Dragon Quest, uh, famously, the first game, sold so poorly that it became a free game that you would get with a Nintendo Power subscription. <laughs> Jeez. So... It, it's just kind of was across the board. Like, if you weren't mm-hmm. playing PC games around this time, you probably weren't playing RPGs. Right. Now, it's difficult to pin down the exact reasons why this is, but I like to posit three reasons. Mm-hmm. The first is that these games were often very simple-looking compared to the side-scrollers and fighting games of the era. Right. And the reason for that is because of number two. These games, because of how long they were, you had to draw a lot of bespoke graphics and store them on these cartridges. Uh, Mm -hmm. Since this wasn't really the time of CDs yet, or at least not in like widespread prominence and widespread acceptability as a format. Right. Uh, You had to, if you wanted to put extra information onto a game, you would have to give, get bigger uh, ROM sizes for your cartridges. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you did that, since they were literally like physical chips and whatnot, This made the games much more expensive to produce and thus more expensive for the consumers. So while these games looked very simple, you still had to pack a lot of graphics on there. You still had to pack a lot of music on there. You had to get bigger storage sizes. And what would happen is that you ended up running into a situation where Final Fantasy VI in North America cost $80 retail Mm. compared to other games that would cost maybe closer to like $40 to $50. Right. Like Super Nintendo cartridge prices were all over the place, depending on what exactly was the what was the innards in that particular cartridge. Right. And the third and final reason is, well, to be honest, the JRPG was considered to be kind of nerdy. Mm, uh, yeah. In a in a um a hot you know, like kind of a hobby uh, media format that was already kind of considered nerdy to begin with. Mm-hmm. So you could- I mean, it's it's not totally off base. JRPGs are basically single player abstract versions of a Dungeons and Dragons game. Yeah, and- like that. That's how they were mostly conceived, and that's basically how they ran for years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, around this time, Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, Dungeons and Dragons around this time just barely exited the satanic panic. It was at its uh-huh. lowest ebb of popularity. Like, yeah. So yeah, no no shock that um, the the JRPG, while perhaps not being tied directly to Satanism, was uh, not exactly the most popular thing in the world. Yeah. Like, RPGs in general, again, it's like, in the early to mid-90s, they didn't even have fantastic representation in PC games. Like, Ultima was okay, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but like actual tabletop RPGs were in a dire state. Mm-hmm. Um, like Dungeons and Dragons was, I don't think even actively doing anything as a as a, a franchise or a property. Mm. And like, yeah, just RPGs were not a hot thing. People barely knew what they were. Yeah, they they barely did. And so, yeah, uh, needless to say, it just wasn't. It it was a bit tough sledding for for JRPGs around this time. And while the Super Nintendo and other cartridge based consoles were king, uh, mm-hmm. that was just kind of the state of things. Yeah. But something happened. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say it's it's also a really hard sell, like as a genre. Mm-hmm. It's like you point at okay, Super Mario World. Uh, you you're Mario. You run and you jump and you go level after level and you can get an egg that turns into a dinosaur and you ride the dinosaur mm-hmm. or Mega Man X is like, you're a robot guy and you run through the city and you shoot other robots and then you fight super powerful robots and you take their power. Like there's a lot of bullet points you can go through. JRPGs are hard to explain and take about four to six hours once you're actually playing it to get going. Yeah. Like it's an incredibly difficult sell just as a genre. It is. It it really, really is. There is such like it's what makes like Final Fantasy VI so cool is because they mm-hmm. they were smart about putting you into the action right away. Right. But that's that's kind of the outlier when you really think about it. Right. But even then, it's like you try to describe it, and you're like, well, there's this there's this opening video. You watch these robots walking through a snowstorm, and there's a girl, and the there's no magic, and but maybe the girl is magic, and then there's this guy. And he saves the girl from a cave with gnomes. And then you go to this castle in the sand and there's this clown. Yeah. Yeah, it's... <laughs> like, describing Final Fantasy VI is a fever dream. <laughs> it kind of is. It kind of is. Um... <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's not something that translates well to just, like, a quick bullet point of what you're going to do. Unlike Mario, right. where it's... Well, yeah, like you said, like Mario, where it's like... Yeah, you're an Italian plumber, you get a dinosaur, you jump on Koopas. There you go. Yep, that's the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thankfully, though, Square's going to kind of learn from this. And with mm-hmm. Final Fantasy VII, they're going to solve a lot of these issues. But yeah. they're going to have to wait for the right format before they can bring this to life. And in 1995, that format's going to finally arrive. The Sony PlayStation would be released, and it would change everything. Uh, while the Sony PlayStation itself didn't necessarily have anything in its internal hardware that made it technically really that much different from like what the 3DO was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was put together in a way that didn't make it more acceptable to a widespread audience. Uh, so the Sony PlayStation was a CD-based uh, console. Uh, you see these as a format for games instead of cartridges uh, that focused on mostly 3D accelerated graphics. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, similar to something about like the 3DO, except more powerful and a lot easier to program for. Right. Uh, so, And upon its release in 1995, Sony made sure to really push that, hey, we do 3D graphics. Look how cool this is. Mm-hmm. Look, look how our CDs can hold up to 700 megabytes compared to your average like, cartridge size of 2 to 4 megabytes. Look how cool this <laughs> thing is. And that was obviously very enticing to a lot of developers. Uh, Especially given that Nintendo's follow-up console to release in 1996, the Nintendo 64, was still going to be cartridge-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, cartridges that would technically hold greater amounts of memory, 
but still would mean you would have more expensive games that would hold less memory on a system that technically was more capable than the PlayStation, but, well. Right. Yeah, that, that limitation turned out to be really hard to overcome. And as a side note, for anyone who's not aware, the disc-based PlayStation began as a collaborative effort between Sony and Nintendo. Yeah. But Nintendo backed out of that. Yeah. Yeah, kind of one of those all-time mistakes on their part. Mm-hmm. Although at the time, it didn't really seem like it was actually going to be the case. Right. It sort of made sense at the time. Well, not only sort of made sense at the time, but for the first year of the Nintendo 64's life, it Mm. actually outsold the PlayStation. Hmm. And it was looking like that Nintendo was going to have another prominent success on their hands. It would be the industry leader once again. Right. Uh, Yeah, people... It's hard to remember. Like, at the end of everything... The PlayStation mm-hmm. is going to handily outsell the Nintendo 64, but it's it's one of those things that's kind of hard to remember, but that first year or so that the N64 right. was on the market, it was nothing but Nintendo all the time. That's mm-hmm. kind of what everybody was talking about, and the sales reflected it. Right. So, and Sony recognized this. So, Square... Looking to follow up on Final Fantasy VI, uh, immediately got started working on Final Fantasy VII with the eye of releasing it on the Nintendo 64. Uh, immediately, though, they ran, ran into the issue of there's probably not going to be enough space to, on the cartridges to do what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nintendo at the time did see this as a potential problem and was working on a disc-based system, a disc-based add-on called the uh, Nintendo 64 disk drive that literally used like essentially advanced floppy disks. But even that wouldn't be enough to support the game that they were going for, as each uh, floppy disk could only hold about 64 megabytes of memory. So they ended up developing a a demo for the Nintendo 64 that does actually feature Final Fantasy VI characters in 3D that was incredibly well-received. But after it became very apparent that there was simply just not going to be enough space on the the 64DD's discs in order to make their vision come true... They decided to flip over all their development to the to the PlayStation. Um, now, funnily enough, they actually did try to do some things to get around all that. Uh, for some of the mm-hmm. uh, now prominent CGI cutscenes in Final Fantasy VII, they actually tried to render that stuff in real time on N64 Oof. hardware and quickly found that this just wasn't <laughs> possible at all. Yeah. And so once they discovered that, they said, well, we're going to move everything to the PlayStation. And with that, that history is basically changed. Up until that mm-hmm. point, Square had been ride and die Nintendo all the way through, to the point that a large part of the Nintendo Super Nintendo's success in Japan could mm-hmm. be basically pinned on Square, right? Uh, and Enix as well. You know, shouldn't have mm. Enix erasure here, but so many very so many of like Square's best games came out during this era for the Super Nintendo and helped mm-hmm. buoy its success, and. What happened with the Nintendo on the Super Nintendo is now going to happen with Sony on the PlayStation. Although nobody really quite knows that yet. Mm-hmm. So development started get started in earnest on Final Fantasy VII on the PlayStation platform. Uh, and this was going to be a game where they were going to try to do some things and take it in like a new direction. Uh, what I mean by that is that for the first six Final Fantasies, it roughly comprised a lot of the core staff just moving forward along uh, from one project to another. Mm-hmm. You know, people like Hironobu Sakaguchi, for instance, the director and producer and whatnot. Uh, 
these prominent figures now are going to take a step back. Uh, Sakaguchi himself, uh, while he technically wasn't the director of Final Fantasy VI, he was only the producer, still mm -hmm. had a lot of input on the development of that game and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, for this time around, though, he decided to take a step back. He was going to just stay strictly in a producer role and concentrate just more on Square in general and just kind of allowed basically a new generation to take over this particular series. Mm. Uh, and some of those people are people who are still with the company to this day and are basically would help steer the square the square and then square in a ship for yeah. the next couple of decades and these are people yep. such as the director yoshinori katase uh these include the one of the main writers uh kazushige nojima uh nojima famous for writing final fantasy 10 which is great <laughs> And in writing all the weird spinoffs of Final Fantasy X, which are, yeah. let's call them, interesting, and yeah. move on. <laughs> <laughs> but probably one of the most prominent people that they that ended up getting brought on was going to be the main character designer and one of the main writers. <sighs> Our boy, Tetsuya Nomura. I love him. He's insane. Nomura is indeed insane. So this is not the first project that Nomura has ever worked mm -hmm. on. And his first project that he ended up working on was actually Final Fantasy V. He was one of the battle sprite designers uh, for okay. enemies and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe he worked in the same capacity in Final Fantasy VI. But with Seven, they decided to bring him on as the main character designer and one of the writers. And he's going to be responsible for creating the entire cast of Final Fantasy VII. And who oh boy... Oh boy, uh, good move, good decision. Man's gonna knock it out of the park. Yep. <laughs> the protagonists and villains of Final Fantasy VII are going to cast such a long shadow over the not only Square, <laughs> but the entire industry in terms yep. of influencing so many different things, whether it's mm -hmm. protagonists who have large swords to spiky hair to, like... It is such an amazing ensemble of characters and also an amazing level of restraint as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because uh, even around this time, like a lot of uh, JRPG protagonists were a little bit out there in terms of like fashion design and whatnot. Yeah, a little bit. What's very interesting about Final Fantasy VII characters is that they they actually look relatively normal, mm. which sort of makes sense given that this game's story, like, story and setting is meant to mm -hmm. be more reflective of the modern day. Yeah, they feel very appropriate for the world that they live in. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Nomura is going to now is more or less one of the most prominent figures at Square. Mm -hmm. uh, he is the main creative figure behind Kingdom Hearts and a lot of other series that have very, very eclectic art styles and uh, mm -hmm. fashion choices for the characters. In ways that sometimes I find incredibly endearing and cool, such as the world mm -hmm. ends with you, and then whatever yep. goes on with half the cast in Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> yeah, you know, there are decisions that get made. A lot of times those decisions involve belts. Yeah, or more and, recently, plaid. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he likes contrasting colors, I'll say that much. He definitely does. He definitely does. He has a very recognizable art style uh, to him that... Uh, uh, has made him a bit divisive in, in some fashion. Mm, yeah, uh, but but regardless, he's he is very uh, key to Square's success going forward. Uh, yeah, and he is definitely. And while he's definitely 
blamed for some of Square's failures. Uh, he's at least as he's at least as responsible for as many of their successes as they are their failures. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's maybe blamed a little bit too much, in yeah. my opinion. I, I think certainly some of them were unfair. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly. Now, speaking of the actual like setting and overworld of Final Fantasy VII, the team decided that they wanted to do something very different compared to what Final Fantasy used to be or was mm-hmm. up until that point. Now, Final Fantasy for the most part, was very much a Tolkien-esque fantasy setting. Uh, you have yep. swords and sorcery, you have kings and castles, you have dragons and whatnot. Uh, there are certainly some uh, key features in Final Fantasy that weren't necessarily mentioned in any other fantasy stories. Uh, cr- elemental crystals, chocobos, uh, you know, giant birds that you could ride around on and whatnot that right. were bespoke to that series that were brought forward from iteration to iteration. But for the most part, it was very much in line with a European fantasy sort of setting. Mm -hmm. Now, starting with Final Fantasy VI, which is kind of the first one where Sakaguchi started to take a bit of a step back, they did change that a little bit to be more of a steampunk setting, uh, more of a Victorian era, if you will. But even then, you still had swords and sorcery very much yeah, in there. Yeah, it was very much historical. It just had, like, what would come to popularly be called Magitech. Yes. It's like, there's technological elements, but they're magical, and they look fantastical still. Exactly, exactly. Final Fantasy VII is going to just ditch all that and be as, maybe not mm-hmm. quite up-to-date modern as possible, but maybe modern right. in, like, a 50s to 60s sort of sense. Yeah, it's style I've heard referred to as diesel punk. Yeah, yeah. And I think that would be accurate to say, honestly. Mm-hmm. I, and I think I've I've talked about this on this podcast before, but that is maybe my f- personal favorite thing about Final Fantasy VII, mm-hmm. is that it is still mechanically and design-wise a JRPG and like an RPG video game. But just the... the I'm going to say courage to say... Just because that's what it mechanically is doesn't mean we have to stick to the same aesthetic and setting that everyone expects. Mm-hmm. Like, why don't we do this in a completely different setting yeah. and a completely different visual style? I think it was just such a... Like, it seems so obvious in retrospect that, yeah, of course you can do that, but no one did. Yeah, no. Like, the closest you got was Fantasy Star. Yeah, like, Fantasy Star kind of did that track, but mm-hmm. by this point, Fantasy Star was kind of no longer really a thing. Like, Yeah, it was it was sort of falling into the background. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like, yeah, this idea of, like, hey, let's do... And even then, that was more of a sci-fi setting. It's not even, like, modern yeah. day. Like, if you want, like, yeah, a modern-day RPGs... No, that was definitely sci-fi, yeah. Yeah, if you want modern-day RPGs, the only one you got is Earthbound. Mm-hmm. And even then, that's not, like, a fusion of, like, almost, like, fantasy with, yeah, like, more modern-day a- aesthetic. Right. So yeah, like yeah, it's such a brilliant idea to do. Uh, now the reason why they came about this, by the way, is that originally Sakaguchi actually wanted to make this literally modern day, as in uh, set in the United States in 1999 hmm. in New York City. Hmm. <laughs> wow! Imagine making an RPG set in the actual modern day in an actual modern day city. I can't. Wow, that's crazy. Who'd do that? Who would do that? Yeah. I mean, it's it's almost maybe if we wait four years until a movie comes out. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, there was Parasite Eve. Oh, there was fair. Parasite Eve. Oh, yeah. Um, and actually, yes, Parasite Eve would actually take that idea and run with it. Um, yeah, to Parasite, act pretty strong success, actually. So Parasite Eve is incredibly great. I love that game so much. 
Uh, but yeah, so with all that, they created this game world that honestly, Square was straight away like this is going to be a huge success in Japan. Right. Now, Square was not so sure it was going to be a success in North America. Mm -hmm. But there was one company who was pretty bullish on the idea, mm -hmm. and that was Sony. Now, Sony was desperately looking for a game that could help basically blunt the Nintendo 64's like massive success that it was having at this time. Mm -hmm. uh, something that could be a graphical showcase to show, to show that not only that they had that they had games that can compare to games that were on the Nintendo 64, but games that could surpass it. Right. And they saw the, not only the 3D graphics that the Final Fantasy VII was doing, but also the cutscenes that I cannot mm -hmm. believe we really haven't touched on. The pre-rendered CGI cutscenes that were, that while nowadays look incredibly antiquated, right. were so mind-bogglingly impressive. Mm -hmm. Literally bullet point on the back of the box, this yep. is a reason why you buy this game. It's what sold the game in America. It did. It 100% would. And Sony saw that and said, this is going to be what's going to sell the game in North America. Yep. yep. And they were super right. Yeah. So they funded a... They basically went to Square and said, hey, listen, um, I know you, you're you not planning on publishing this game in North America, which, fun fact, Square was not planning on publishing this game in North America. I mean, literally half the series hadn't come out in North America, so that's not that surprising. Yeah, it kind of tracks... Sony was like, listen, we will publish this game. We will give you significant royalty rights on here. Mm. Uh, instead of taking like the vast majority that they would be entitled to for being the publisher. Right. Uh, they were like, we'll essentially just give this back to you. Just let uh -huh. us publish this game. Right. And they were like, well, if they're going to do that, what do we have to lose? Right. Let's go ahead and do this. And so, you know, Square got started like translating the game. Uh, they did so with an internal team uh, that was not very good. This game is uh, very poorly translated, but... Yeah, but in an endearing way. It is very endearing, yeah. And and we'll, we'll touch a little bit more on the translation issues as we get to the plot and talk about mm. some of the characters, but uh, Sony ended up blitzing uh, North America with a an ad campaign that was that included spots during the Super Bowl mm. uh, and other prominent uh, prominent events. Like WrestleMania, I believe. I believe so as well, yes. And they were like, you know what? We're going to go all out and we're going to convince people that this is going to be the next biggest thing. Mm -hmm. And upon its release, they were 100% correct. Yep. Final Fantasy VII is one of the best-selling games in the series. It is one of the best-selling games on the PlayStation platform in general. In the first week of release in North America alone, it would sell one and a half million copies. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, for the Final Fantasy series in general, it is absolutely insane. Yep. Uh, it is considered a game that was ultimately a system seller for the Sony PlayStation. A uh, PlayStation install base at the start of 1997 was roughly around 10 million. Mm. By the end of 1997, it's going to be 16 million. Wow. Yes. And remember, the PlayStation in North America had been out roughly about a mm -hmm. year and a half up to this point. So it's... Right. So early adopters have already gotten it. Usually you see it trail off around this time uh, into a system's lifespan. Uh, 
So the fact that it ended up getting an additional six million uh, units sold just goes to show just how um, how successful this is. And this isn't just me pulling this out of thin air to correlate the two. The game itself worldwide sold roughly about three million units within, I believe, its first couple of months. Let me see. By the end of the year, it roughly sold about nine million. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, it was incredibly, incredibly successful. By the end of uh, 1998, apparently it ended up selling an additional 6 million copies. Like in 1999, it somehow um, sell, sold like an additional 7 million. Like <laughs> there is such a tail on this that is absolutely right. nuts. Because okay, that implies that like it's not just the people who saw it got super hyped for it and ran mm -hmm. out and bought it and possibly a PlayStation. Yeah. Like there were holdouts and people who couldn't get it at launch or like already had an N64 and we're like, nah, you know, whatever. But like the reputation of it, yeah, just yeah. continued to draw people in. Yeah, and I, I do want to correct. That's cumulative. By the end of uh, 19, mm. 1999, okay. it sold seven point seven point two million copies. But the the point being is that it meant over over a span of a year, it sold an additional one point two million copies for a game that was two years old at that time. Right. That's still ridiculous. Yes. And yeah. So it was an incredible success, and from that success, it's going to influence more or less a lot of not only good but questionable decisions that square is going to make from now yeah on. Uh, everything yeah. from the visual style and what the who the protagonists are in final fantasy ace to the entire strategy behind final fantasy 13 is all gonna stem from final <sighs> fantasy 7 but we're gonna get to that when we start talking about the uh, questionable sequels and spinoffs of this series yeah Alex? Yeah, let's, let's focus on the good decisions for now. Let's focus on the good decisions, and let's talk about the plot of Final Fantasy VII. A plot that, honestly, is incredibly good. Yeah. Yeah, for, like, for its... For everything that it is, it mm -hmm. really works. It really, really does. So, to do just a really quick setup of the world state of Final Fantasy VII. Once again, it's set in more of a, like, 1950s to 1960s modern day. Once again, diesel punk sort of aesthetic behind it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it focuses mostly around the struggles of a uh, eco-terrorist group against a prominent electric power company that also is just the creators of basically everything from foodstuffs to military weapons by the name of Shinra. Mm -hmm. And our game starts us by opening up, by looking at the night sky, before it flips down to the face of a young woman. As she looks at, into a strange green light, walks out into a strange unknown city that's full of people, advertisements, looking very much like New York City. Before pulling out, and you see a giant circular city with a giant, giant skyscraper in the middle, and the... And of course, the music pops in. You see the logo Final Fantasy VII, and the game lets you know you're about to be in for a wild ride because it literally then zooms down and you see a train pull into a station. And the incredibly good bombing mission music starts up. Mm -hmm. uh, two people hop. Two people who like look like ragtag freedom fighters jump off this train. Immediately beat up some soldiers. A giant black man with a machine gun on his arm. <laughs> Well, machine gun for a right for, arm, I should for say. For his arm, yeah. Yeah. Walks off the train, signals for another guy to jump down, and then a spiky-haired gentleman does a backflip off the train. 
<laughs> in time with the music. And the game immediately throws you into a battle. And so we meet our first two of our protagonists. The first one, the spiky-haired, blonde-haired gentleman. Uh, his name is The Amazing Cloud Strife. <laughs> Just an amazing name. Oh, so good. You forget how incredible... Just anime names were in oh. general during the 90s. Oh, yeah. They really are. And Cloud's name is easily the most ridiculous out of everybody. Like, everybody has yeah. like, some slightly weird names here and there. But Cloud is just straight up like, I am protagonist, Mr. Protagonist. Look at my yeah. name. That's Cloud and Strife. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, Cloud Strife. Um, a... A slender but toned man, roughly about, I'd say about five foot eight or so, uh, mm. who wields a giant, essentially a giant kitchen knife called a buster sword mm -hmm. <laughs> that literally is as tall as him. Uh, he is a prominent mercenary who is used to be part of Shinra as part of their special forces called Soldier. <laughs> Soldier, by the way, is all capital letters. Yeah, implying it's an acronym, but I don't think it is. I don't think it is either. So Cloud is a former soldier first class, which is the best possible soldier you can be. Uh, he is an incredibly aloof man who does not care about anything but the money. Although this is his first uh, mercenary mission, so that is actually remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. uh, as part of being a soldier, he was exposed to something called Mako, which we'll get into in a bit of a second. That gives him glowy eyes, it gives him super strength. And he is super cool and, and super brooding and all the ladies love him. Uh, in this game, that's literally all the ladies <laughs> in this game love him. Uh, yep. Yep. So after getting done with this fight, um, the team that he is running with end up going to this gate and are, they're trying to break into the the Mako reactor or actually it's called Mako Mako reactor. That is here in the Shinra city of Midgar. So. Midgar, a ring city, is surrounded by all these uh, different uh, Mako reactors, which are what provide the energy for the city, and also the energy for basically any city in the world. Uh, the problem is that these are powered via something called uh, Mako, which is part of the literally the planet's very essence called the life stream. Uh, the life stream is literally pumped out of the ground. It is shipped to these reactors, where it is then burnt in order to create energy. If yeah, so they kind of basically imply that the city is turning ghosts into electricity and everyone seems to be cool with that. Yeah, because everyone seems to agree that Mako is the life stream. <laughs> yeah, like the, the science of that does not appear to be in question. Yeah, no, no, they just go, yeah, no, this is happening. <laughs> <laughs> Which, all right, sure, you know what? I can buy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, when you really think about it, given that Mako is literally just oil in this universe. Right. Uh, and oil is just, you know, dead dinosaurs for more or less. Right. It kind of works. But works. We, we don't have the religion that your soul will return to the oil. <laughs> well, not Christianity anyways. Oh, well, okay, yes. fair. Yeah, not wrong. Not wrong. So as they're trying to break into this reactor, uh, the the giant prominent man with the, the gun for an arm, his name is Barrett Wallace. He is the leader of a rebel group named Avalanche, and he's in charge of you know a bunch of other misfits that include 
uh, uh, Jesse, who is the bomb maker, Biggs and Wedge, who are basically just there for moral support. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their whole thing yeah. is that they want to blow, blow up these reactors to wake the people up and stop Shinra from, you know, using the life stream and killing the planet. Because their main belief is that if they use up all of the Mako, it will kill the planet, nothing will be born, nothing will be grow, and the planet will die along with the rest of humanity. Uh, and Cloud himself is like, I don't care about this, whatever. Barrett tells them, planets die in Cloud. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cloud's like, I don't care, just give me the money. Yeah, Barrett gets very angry about this, but he's like, God, whatever, fine. And he go and end up successfully blowing up the reactor, uh, killing a lot of people in the process. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, our friends are, by the way, are eco-terrorists. And yeah, like, are that's, unab- that's pretty clear. Yeah, and they're unabashedly eco-terrorists. Like, Barrett's like, well, hey, you know, we say ends justify the means, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like Jesse, the bomb maker, is like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have made the po- bomb that much that powerful. You know, I, I could have spared a few people. Like she's like feeling a little bit bad about that. Everyone else right. is just like, man, whatever. We're cool with that. Right. And it, it's the really interesting setup to like your characters to be like, oh, one of them is an eco terrorist, and the other one is a mercenary working for that eco terrorist because he wants to get paid. Exactly. Yeah, they're. Like, they have a set of morals about them, and they do have a code, but it's not a code that, like, lines up with your typical protagonist of who's right. like, all life is sacred, I must protect it. Right. They're like, all life is sacred, so we're going to kill you to make sure all life can continue. Right. <laughs> like, it's it's a very interesting setup, and it's one where they actually do kind of wrestle with it later in the game. Like, this is not this mm-hmm. does not go unchallenged. Yeah. Which is interesting. Uh, so, they all escape... Um, uh, and end up going to, to the Sector 7 slums. So, Midgar is made up of uh, two sections. There's the upper plate where all the rich people live, and then there's the lower plate, which is behind, which is underneath uh, the actual plate and whatnot. That is mm-hmm. uh, where the old city of Midgar is before it was literally built up. Uh, this is where all the poor people live who cannot afford anything, and nothing grows down there, and it's constantly polluted, and literally the rich people throw the trash down mm-hmm. on, on the poor and people down there. And it The absolutely... upper plate blocks out the sun, so it's always twilight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it absolutely, it's a place that absolutely sucks to live, and it looks like it sucks to live, and there's a bunch mm-hmm. of mutated monsters that have been mutated by Mako leaks and whatnot. It is absolutely an awful place to live. It's awesome. Yeah, it's rules. It's fantastic setting design. It is a fantastic setting design. Like, Midgar is... This is where I was talking about, like, you know, Square learns a lesson, and they just mm-hmm. put you right into the setting, right into the action. Between right. the bombing mission and then putting you down into the slums, they really establish, like, what they're going for, what this game is about, and right. it's so I- good. It's so good. I don't think there is a single setting more memorable or prominent in the entire Final Fantasy series than Midgar. I don't think there is. It's, I, like, the closest they get, oddly enough, in my opinion, is maybe Final Fantasy VIII. Maybe, Like, Battle Garden is pretty cool. Yeah. But even then, like, they abandoned that pretty quickly and just put you out to JRPG world. And yeah, whereas Final Fantasy VII is straight up like, no, you can be hanging out here for a while. Mm-hmm. They, they, and it's, it's like central to the plot. It is. It is. And yeah, it's it is to nothing but this game's benefit. Mm-hmm. So they all retreat to Sector 7. 
And they all congregate on this bar called Seventh Heaven, which is just the main avalanche base. Uh, and it turns out in that base, the bartender is a childhood friend of Cloud's, a woman wow. by the name of Tifa Lockhart. Tifa is a martial arts master, um, a also an eco-terrorist as she is part of Avalanche. She just was hanging behind this mission and part-time mm -hmm. cowboy tour guide. Uh, <laughs> Does she still do that at this point? Or is that like a, is that her old job? I guess that's her old job at this point, but she does yeah. for some reason wear a cowboy hat later. Um, <laughs> she is a childhood friend of Cloud back when they used to live in a town called Nibelheim. She is a a woman with black hair, prominent red eyes, uh, wears a tank top uh, and a mm -hmm. uh, basically a pencil skirt, a black pencil skirt. Uh -huh. uh, Any other prominent features about her? Uh, she does have sizable breasts. Yes. Mm. Yes. Uh, she is kind of. It's very, very interesting. I'm going to make this. I'm going to get into more detail when we get to the other other uh, female love interest for Cloud later. Mm. Uh, but she is being set up as kind of like like the sexy character who's going to be like kind of outgoing and whatnot, but she is totally right. not that. She's Yeah, no, it's weird. Yeah, Tifa's actually pretty darn reserved and pretty down-to-earth. She's like a very girl-next-door sort of character for Cloud. Mm -hmm. um, and we actually see... And this is actually something they re do really... That's really cool between the relationship that Cloud and Tifa have. Mm -hmm. uh, Cloud, when he's like with Barrett and the rest of Avalanche, is trying to be cool and aloof and whatnot. With right. Tifa, he's actually himself. Mm -hmm. Like he's like a little bit more vulnerable. He's more willing to talk to, with her and whatnot. Right. Um, and as uh, as they talk, they talk about how like you know, Cloud made a childhood promise to her that he was going to be joint soldier and like come and save her and be a hero one day. And so like when um, Barrett comes up and like pays him money and whatnot, Cloud's like. Uh, you know what? Maybe I'll stick around and help you out a little bit more instead of just leaving to find my next job. Mm. And it turns out their next job is they're going to go and blow up another reactor. If it worked before, yeah, it ain't broke. Don't fix it. I I will say to that point about you know Tifa and Cloud's relationship. I think it's one of the things that makes Cloud work as a character. Mm -hmm. Is it because at this time? So just to add a little bit of context, um. A lot of Cloud's archetype as, like, the cool, aloof, badass with a big sword is, like, very popular mm -hmm. during the mid to late 90s in anime and Japanese media. Probably primarily thanks to the influences of Berserk, but also, you know, other things. Yeah. It, it's just sort of the style of the time. Um, what I think makes Cloud work is that, especially because of his interactions with Tifa... You can see that that cool, aloof badassness is very much an act that he is very deliberately putting on. Oh, yeah. And you you can see that fall away with Tifa, but you can also see him just slip up around mm -hmm. other people and be like, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm cool. Mm -hmm. I'm cool. Check out this backflip I can do. <laughs> what, what, you want to see me spin my sword? That's That's cool, right? <laughs> Yeah, totally, totally. Like, he, he's very try-hard when he is around mm -hmm. other people, but occasionally yeah. the dork in him just comes out. Yeah, to the point that even Barrett's like, okay, yeah, whatever, man. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, it's, it's a very, it's very good how they do that. Mm -hmm. I, they do a really good job with the characters in this game, like, yeah. giving those little nuances. Even though none of these lines are voiced, it's all text and whatnot. Mm -hmm. 
it's all very honestly very simple 3d animations they're doing but they still have oh, such yeah. character to them uh that yeah it's 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 amazing what they've accomplished with that so they all get ready to go off to the to the reactor and whatnot um uh you know, end up boarding a train, taking it up to the upper plate like they did last time. Although, after some shenanigans where they end up getting caught by security, they have to take like kind of like a long way in there. But regardless, they get in. They end up getting into the reactor. Uh, this time, Tifa goes with them. So you have Tifa, Barrett, and uh, and Cloud. They end up getting to the reactor. They end up setting up the bomb, and you know everything seems like it's fine. There's going to be no issues going on. Mm-hmm. Although. Before Cloud could put the bomb on there, he ends up getting like a weird flashback, which is kind of odd. Like he grabs his head, mm-hmm. like he ends up getting some tinnitus in his ear, and he gets a flashback to another reactor. And we see Tifa with a cowboy hat standing over a dead man, saying that she's going to give her revenge on Shinra before getting a giant sword and running off. And like Tifa and Barrett are like, hey, what, what's going on with that? He's like, ah, oh, no, no, cool. I'm, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Plant the bomb. No alarms going off. That's great. Let's get on out of here. So they go to leave, but then all of a sudden a bunch of sh- soldiers come out and like surround him. They're like, oh. Uh. And then in a power move, a helicopter lands, and out <laughs> comes the president of this Shinra Electric Company. President Shinra himself. So President Shinra is a white man with blonde hair and a mustache. Uh, relatively, I wouldn't say necessarily fat, but pretty stocky. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he basically is there to just more or less taunt everybody, because he's like, yep, this is all a trap. Oh, so this is Avalanche? Boy, you all seem like you suck. <laughs> oh, hey, you got a soldier with you? Man, soldiers, yeah, those are pretty cool when they follow orders. Uh, man, I remember the greatest soldier that we ever had. A guy named by the name of Sephiroth. He was brilliant. Maybe too brilliant. Good thing he's dead. Anyways, here's this giant robot I have. They're gonna murder you all. And so Shinra then leaves uh, along with all the soldiers. They have to fight a giant robot called the Airbuster. And upon, like, destroying it, it explodes, blows up the bridge that they were standing on, with Cloud on one side just hanging by a thread, and Barrett and Tifa on another. Uh, there's time Cloud's, like, just being cool. He's like, Barrett, take care of Tifa for me. And Barrett's mm-hmm. like, all right, man, don't worry. And, like, Barrett's whole thing, like, throughout this is that he, like, he's, like, trying to put on a front that he doesn't care about the well-being of Cloud. Like, he's trying to be uh-huh. kind of cool himself, but right. the secret to Barrett's character is that he's the mom of the group. Yes. He's like, he'll tell you that, oh, yeah, no, you can go ahead and run away. But if you do leave the house, he's going to be, like, super worried about you. Mm-hmm. He, will pack, yep. he will pack you a lunch, but he'll say, no, it's just my lunch, man. No, but you can have it. <laughs> like, that's his character to a T. Yeah. So the reactor explodes. Cloud falls from the bridge and falls down into the lower plate, seemingly to his death. But it turns out, no, because he crashes through the roof of the church uh, <laughs> and falls onto the only flower bed in the lower slums. And upon waking up, he sees the girl from the intro and a girl that he actually technically did meet once after he blew up the mm. first reactor, a flower girl by the name of Aerith Gainsborough. Now, Aerith is a, a woman with brown hair uh, tied up in a ponytail, green eyes. She wears a relatively plain pink dress with a red jacket over it. Now, unlike Tifa... So Tifa, you know, was supposed to be like this kind of like bombshell who you figure was mm-hmm. going to be like a super outgoing sort of person or whatnot. Right. Uh, but actually isn't. Uh, Aerith is the exact opposite. You think that she's going to be, oh, kind of quiet and reserved, but she totally isn't. She's like, right. 
happy and bubbly and like, oh, yeah, she's like a very outgoing person who can talk to anybody, which makes sense. She's a salesperson. She sells flowers. Mm -hmm. uh, so she immediately sees like Cloud and is like, oh, hey, you fell on my flowers. How's it going? Oh, you have you have like weird Mako eyes. Oh, hey, I used to have a boyfriend who had Mako eyes. He was in Soldier. You probably knew him. <laughs> huh, weird. Anyways. <laughs> Oh, just just dropping that. Just you know. Oh wow. Eh. Yeah. yeah. Funny how the world works. Funny how the world works. Yeah. So like Cloud immediately is like trying to be cool with her, but mm. um, just like how, just like kind of like how like everybody eventually sees through Cloud. Uh, Aerith sees through Cloud immediately. Right. <laughs> and she's like, right. oh, you're just trying to act cool. Like it's adorable. Yeah. Like kind of like how um. So Cloud, much like how he has different interactions with Barrett and Tifa. His interaction with Aerith is also quite a bit different. So, like, mm -hmm. once again, he's he's himself when he's with uh, when he's with Tifa. He's trying to be cool when he's with Barrett. With Aerith, he's he immediately tries to be cool. Is immediately called on his shit <laughs> in like a playful, jokey way, but still uh -huh. called on it. And so, and then immediately he's just flustered. He just does not right. know how to deal. <laughs> yes, a Aerith's immediate reaction to Cloud is "You're adorable." Mm -hmm. And he does not know how to react. <laughs> it's great. Uh, yeah. I, I also have to call out um, Aerith as possibly my favorite, if not character design in the game, definitely outfit design. It's very good. It's very good because she's got like, she's got the ponytail. She's got the simple dress. Like she looks like your sort of typical RPG maiden, mm -hmm. but she's also got this like, red leather jacket and these heavy leather boots because mm -hmm. yeah. she's from the slums yeah like she's a street kid you're literally walking on glass all the time you need heavy boots yeah and like it, it is like this it gives you the impression and evokes the images of the typical archetype but it's also got this like reality to it of like this is someone from the slums this is someone who knows how to survive mm -hmm. and that immediately starts to come out in their character and in her interactions as well. Yeah, exactly. She's, she's fast talking. She's pretty street smart. Like, yeah, she's, it's a real con. I guess that's like another like contrast to like Tifa who like, mm -hmm. isn't like that at all. Right. Which makes sense. Cause Tifa's not from around here. She's from a right. small town out in the country. As it turns yeah. out. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's really, it's a really good job that you did to like, like not only with her uh, visual design, but way the way she acts that places her pro makes it believable that she lives somewhere like Midgar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, she is great. So Cloud's like immediately about to leave when a couple of guys come in, you know, wearing like yakuza looking guys, wearing black um, black suits with like you know white shirts underneath, and uh, one of them like has like spiky red hair with like a weird scar on his face. Uh, it's time to talk about my favorite characters in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and another guy with um, a, a bald head and, like, a nice goatee, always wearing sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tifa, uh, not Tifa, uh, Aerith sees these people and is like, oh, hey, by the way, you said you're a mercenary? Like, you do bodyguard services, right? <laughs> How about you bodyguard me against these guys? Because <laughs> these guys, it turns out, works for Shinra. They're called the Turks, which Cloud immediately recognizes them because, of course, he's worked for Shinra before. Right. And he's like, oh, yeah, they do kind of all sorts of things. Everything from, like, black ops to kidnapping to 
literally getting coffee for people. They mm-hmm. literally anything President Shinra needs them to do, they're the ones right. to do it. And these two guys are Reno and Rude. Reno being the red hair guy, Rude being a bald hair sun, bald head sunglasses guy. Um, so Rude himself is like very, very like laid back and like, hey, you know, I'm just here to handle business. Reno is very like, I'm going to just be fast talking, talking shit all mm. the time. Cloud immediately wrecks him. <laughs> 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 and so they end up escaping through the um, through the top of the church and uh, like uh, and like just jump a bunch like among the rooftops and whatnot. And eventually, it was like, oh, yeah, uh, how about you be my bodyguard? I, I have no money, but hey, I'll give you a date. How's that sound? <laughs> and Cloud's like, I sh- sure. OK, where do you want me to go? It's like, yeah, just go ahead and take me home. Uh, it's literally a place, that, the only other place that has flowers around here. You can't <laughs> miss it. <laughs> and so he does. He takes her home. And, you know, we end up meeting Eris' mom, Elmira, who's like, oh, hi, how's it going? Yeah, of course he could. Of course this strange man can stay over, <laughs> sweetie. Yeah, go up to bed. Hi, Cloud. I'm Elmira. I don't trust you. Could you please sneak out in the middle of the night and never come back? <laughs> Which Cloud's yeah. like, yeah, okay, not fair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, and also during this time, Cloud's like, you know, the Turks probably know where you live. They're going to come get you, right? And she's like, oh, no, they're probably not going to. We just kind of do the song and dance every once in a while. <laughs> they want me to come with them, but willingly, so I'm like, kind of whatever. <laughs> and Cloud's like, okay, whatever, man. So Cloud's trying to get back to Sector 7, so he sneaks out, he leaves, and he um, ends up going to the Sector 7 gate when... Aerith just catches up to him and is like, hey, you ran off. What the hell? He's like, ah, uh, hi, yeah. He's, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I did my job. I got you home. She's like, no, I'm still walking around out here, so I still need, um, I still need somebody to help me out. So I guess we still, I guess you're still on the clock, huh? He's like, fine, whatever. I guess you can come with me to Sector 7. So they end up going to, like, this park. Uh, they have, like, a nice moment where they sit on top of the slide and whatnot, and she tells tells Cloud a little bit more about her boyfriend and whatnot. And as they're doing that, they see a cart come out with a chocobo. And in it is a lady who's dressed up all fancy-like. And it turns out it's Tifa. It turns out she's going to a place in a... a place in a a pleasure district called Wall Market to see a person named Don Corneo. Because it turns out they had overheard that something bad was going to happen in Sector 7 and Don Corneo may have some information. So... Cloud and, Tifa, uh, Cloud and Aerith go and follow her because like, Cloud's like, hey, that's my childhood friend. And Aerith's like, oh, yeah, no, we got to go help her then. Let's just do this. So they end up um, going uh, going to Don Corneo's mansion. Uh, they're like, we're not going to let you in. We don't let guys in. So Aerith's like, how about we dress you up as the sexy lady? <laughs> <laughs> Which they immediately do. And Cloud nails it. Yep. Uh, they end up going into the mansion. They meet up with Tifa, who's like, uh, Cloud? Okay, first off, glad you're alive, too. Why are you... Dr- Anyways. Anyway. Let's go and talk to Don Corneo together. So, they all bust in there. Don Corneo's like, oh, man, which one? Can't wait to pick which one I get to have sex with. <laughs> oh, wait, you all know how to fight and have swords and weapons? Oh. Uh-oh. I messed up. Hmm. So, it turns out Shinra has located Avalanche's headquarters in the Sector 7 slums, and in a, let's call it a bold move, they're going to uh, discharge the plate that's over Sector 7, which people mm-hmm. live on, by the way. Right, and under. And other, and slam it down, 
killing everybody. Probably hundreds of thousands of people, actually. Right. And they're going to blame it all on Avalanche, and it's going to be great. And in fact, they're going to be starting on it right now. And so Tifa and Cloud and Aerith are like, oh, that sucks. We got to leave now. And uh, Don Cornell's like, yeah, I bet you do. Anyways, you're standing over my trapdoor. And sends them down to the sewers. So they have to do like this long run through the sewers and go through a literal train graveyard full of ghosts mm-hmm. uh, before they get back to Sector 7 where they find that, yeah, it's under attack and Barrett and the rest of Avalanche are doing their best to to like stop it. Um, so Cloud and Tifa are like, oh, we got to go up there and help them because they're going to go up to the controls that are on the pillar that supports the plate and like, you know, release it. We got to go and stop them. Uh, Aerith, can you go to this bar? There's this little girl there named Marlene. It's Barrett's daughter. Could you please get her out of there? And so she's like, no problem. So Cloud and Tifa go up onto the pillar. They like run into the dying members of Avalanche. Uh, so Jesse, uh, Biggs. Uh, you actually see Wedge like fall from the pillar and like slam into the ground. Mm-hmm. It's all kinds of mess up because like while you don't talk to these characters a whole lot, like they do actually a pretty decent job the limited time you have of like mm-hmm. establishing that like these characters are meaningful to yeah the avalanche. You're, you're kind of fond of them yeah so it's like oh man it's like jesse no i like you you're great you built bombs yeah uh, so they get up to up uh, top of um the plate and they run into the turks again uh reno are rude uh unfortunately not before reno dislodges the plate uh so before the plate can like crash down, a helicopter flies by and we run into another member of the Turks whose name is Sen. And it turns out he has captured Aerith and is like, hey, yep, guess what? I got her. Plate's about to slam. Guess you're all going to die. Sounds good, huh? Now, Aerith yells out, hey, listen, Marlene's safe. And then they all fly off. So Cloud, Cloud Tifa and Barrett end up grabbing like a constru- like. A construction crane cable and like just mm-hmm. literally swing out of sector seven somehow <laughs> barely escaping the plate slamming into the ground killing them uh, all the while as the as you see the cutscene of it slamming down into the ground uh you've cut back to the shinra building the big building that's in the center of town and you see president shinra with soft like orchestral music playing or like opera music essentially as he looks and upon the plate slamming to the ground like a very good like ah yes this is exactly what I wanted sort of moment. Mm-hmm. So Barrett is distraught. His entire team is dead. He's yelling their names out. He's like furiously shooting at the wreckage of Sector Seven, uh, which is just now all completely flattened. And he's like, "My daughter is dead. Everything is terrible." Tifa's like, "Not listen." I, Eris shouted out, "Marlene is safe. I think she's okay." And Cloud's like, "Oh yeah, I, I bet you. I know where she is. I bet she she's back at Eris' house." On the other side of the city. I don't know how she's that fast, but she is, I guess. Anyways, so they all go to Almira's house and they end up running into Marlene. And yeah, she's she's safe. And like Cloud gives Elmira the news that, yeah, she's been taken by the Turks. And Elmira's like, yeah, I expected this to happen. Mm. Hey, sit down, everybody. Let me tell you about my daughter, who's not actually my daughter. I adopted her. So it turns out Elmira had a husband who was in the army, the Shinra army, the corporate army, mm. uh, who ended up fighting off in a far off land called Butai. Uh, Butai just literally being Japan. Uh, right. And like during that war, she was always like waiting for him to come back. And then one day when she was at the train station, she ran to a dying woman and her small girl. 
dying woman is like, please take care of my daughter. And she's like, well, I kind of always wanted a daughter. So yeah, I took her home. <laughs> um, it turns out this daughter had weird powers, though. She claimed that she could listen to the planet. And one day she told her that, hey, listen, don't be sad. Your husband's returned to the planet. And she's like, that's mm. really strange. And then she got a letter from the Shinra Corporation informing her that her husband had fallen in battle. And so it was like from that day on, she knew that there was something weird and special and that she had to protect Aerith at all costs. But it was also during this time that the Turks got notice of her and said, hey, listen, we want her to come with us because she could help us find something called the Promised Land. And that would mean free energy for everybody and mean the world would be great. But we need her to come along with us because she's the last person of this race of people that no longer exists called the the uh, the Cetra. And so Eris like, I'm not going to do this. Elmire's like, I'm not going to do this. And so basically over the years, there's been gentle coercion, which has now led to outright attempts at kidnapping. Mm -hmm. And like all during this, Eris seems playing in the background. It's like a it's such a good scene. It's really good. And it's, it is like this. You were so caught up in like this, what is ultimately turns out to be this very local, very personal conflict mm -hmm. that you sort of forgot to expect a larger story. Mm -hmm. And then right now the game's like, oh yeah, by the way, ancient people, magic, talking to the planet, uh, promised land. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Like it, it starts to drop like kind of the bigger plot bombs on you. Mm hmm. It also does something else that I think is really nice in that, like, there's this overarching goal of, like, we have to save the planet, but then it, right. it causes a gear shift to be, like, this more, like, small time, like, okay, no, we just need to rescue Aerith. Right. Like, she, in a short time, we've gotten nowhere. She's, she's become incredibly important to us. She's incredibly important to this woman who's just burying her soul and telling her entire life story. Mm. Like, she saved this little girl. We got to do everything possible to get her back. Right. And that's exactly what they set out to do. They're like, we are going to go to the upper plate and we are going to literally bum rush the Shinra Tower and we are going to rescue her. And that's what they do. They they find like this wire, which Barrett calls a shiny wire, golden wire of hope. And they, <laughs> they climb up and get up to the upper tower. Uh, they can't take the trains at this time because there's all the terrorist attacks and whatnot. They shut down the trains. Right. Uh, so they get up to the Shinra Tower and in a really really good scene like you're just they're just having the camera like ground level pointed up and you just have mm -hmm. your three prominent characters like standing in front of there like okay how are we gonna do this are we gonna rush through the front door are we gonna take the stairs <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah um they end up rushing into the tower either through the front door which is a big running fight or they take the stairs where barrett complains the entire time they run a lot of flights of stairs which is great. It's great. Uh, but yeah, they they end up um, slowly making their way from floor to floor and whatnot. Uh, they run into Hojo's lab uh, where they end up uh, finding uh, this like weird pod that's called Genova. And like when they like look in there, they just see this headless corpse that has like weird <laughs> wings and stuff. And like, this is that's weird. This is that weird. Seems weird. And on top of that, they also listen in on a board meeting between all the prominent members of the, of the Shimra's executive corps. This includes, of course, President Shinra, but a bunch of new characters, such as Scarlet, uh, a blonde woman in a red dress, um, who uh, I believe is in charge of the weapons division. I'm not quite sure. Yes, yeah, weapons research. Weapons research, yeah. Um, Heidegger, who is a man who laughs a lot with a incredible 
incredible anger management issue and <laughs> maybe the one of the bushiest beers I've ever seen. He he's basically kind of a lick spittle uh, mm. for President Shinra. Uh, Palmer, who's in charge of the space division, he's basically a, a fat, rotund man who right. likes tea and butter. Uh, uh, the space division, which heads up Shinra, is not currently funding or using. Yes, he constantly asks for funding. They go, we're not going to do that. <laughs> uh, Hojo, who heads up the science division, who is a super creep. Super creepy. Uh, and we, he establishes he's a creep because he's like, there's only one Cetra remaining, and we may not have enough time to research where the promised land is from her, and my experiments are dangerous. So what I'm going to do, though, is that even though she's not fully Cetra, because apparently she's half Cetra, we learned this here, uh, I have this dog, and we're going to breed him together and make more babies. Everyone cool with that? And everyone's like, no, but I don't want to talk to you anymore, so fine. <laughs> yeah, they're like, just go away, please. Oh my god. <laughs> why, why the dog? Why the dog, right? And so, you have all these evil cartoon characters, and you have Reeve, who's in charge of infrastructure and planning. And he's like, right. oh boy, a lot of people die from Sector 7, we need to really start reconstruction immediately and rescue efforts. Mm -hmm. And President Shinra is like, no, nah, we're not going to do that. Uh, we said we're going to start building a Neo Midgar because we're going to find the promised land soon and we're going to need to build Neo Midgar on top of it so we can tap all that energy and earn all the money. And Reeves like, that sounds really amoral. And President Shinra is like, you should take a two-week vacation. Mm -hmm. You do a good job, Reeve. Take a two-week vacation. You're stressed. <laughs> Only good person in his executive meeting. <laughs> Reeve is the most realistic character in this whole game. He He's the head of infrastructure who constantly gets shit on and ignored and then told, no, no, you're doing great. You're doing great. Just go sit over there and look pretty. Yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. We don't need more money for roads. It's no, no. But what are bike lanes? We don't well, need yeah. bike lanes. How can the we bridges haven't collapsed yet, so they're probably not gonna. Yeah, so like they see all that and like, oh, God, we need to get Aerith immediately. <laughs> yeah. And and so when they get into Icoach's lab, like they, they find that he's in the middle of trying his breed lady with dog experiments. Yeah, and the dog's like, bro, no. Yeah. What? Yeah, dog no. immediately breaks out and attacks Hojo. <laughs> my favorite thing. Mm -hmm. He's like, haha, my evil plan is coming to, oh no, the dog. Oh no, the dog is eating my face. And so your team watches in because like, oh, no, the dog's about to attack Aerith. But then it turns out, no, the dog can talk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Also, the dog talks. Yeah. He's like, hi. Yeah. My name's Red 13 uh, because I've been branded Red 13. Uh, mm. Don't know why. Y'all seem fine, though. Uh, yeah. I'll help you out, I guess. I don't have much motivation to do so right now, but I don't want to be here and you don't. So. So they're like, OK, well, we got everybody. Let's just go ahead and leave. And they all get into the elevator and then. Uh, Rude shows up. And he's like, eh, "Can you hit the button for up, please?" And they're like, uh "Oh, no!" So they're immediately captured and paraded before President Shinra, who's like, "Ha ha! I guess we captured you." Well, we're gonna put you in prison now. We'll decide what we're gonna do later, and that's what they do. They, they put him in some holding cells, and but unfortunately, when they wake up, they see that all the doors are open. Some ominous. But just to, just to point out real quick, it's kind of weird that like Rude just gets in the elevator and they're like, "Well, guess we're captured." Yeah, it's like there's like four of you. Yeah, you, you can just beat him up. He's not Captain America. You'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. I it's it's it is kind of weird that they just immediately give up. <laughs> yeah, like they've been busting through the security forces this whole time. Like, why are you suddenly like, oh, well, 
I guess I guess we're captured now. Yeah, I guess I guess. No, there's it. five of them. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, there is five of them actually. <laughs> oh yeah. well. Yeah, it's weird. But yeah, so they wake up and like ominous music is playing, like all the doors are open. There's a blood trail for some reason. Yeah, everyone... there's a lot of blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a lot of like slashes in the walls, and everyone is dead. Like they get they find the Genova pod again, now it's been busted open. There's goo rushing out of it, and like, mm. uh and so they get up to the president's office and they just see a giant sword that's like nine feet long uh, <laughs> that's sticking through the back of President Shinra. And they're like, oh, he's dead. And mm-hmm. Cloud, though, recognizes the sword. He's like, oh, that's Sephiroth's sword. It's like, oh, Sephiroth's alive. He must have come and shown up to get his revenge. Huh. That's bad. And they're like, oh, Sephiroth, he's the war hero, right? The prominent soldier first class man, whatnot. And like, yeah, he's mm-hmm. like, yeah. It's like, oh, that's great then, though. He's on our side. Oh, it's like n- no, he's not. No, no I'll tell you this. St- I'm gonna tell you the story later. But we need to leave now. Mm-hmm. But Barrett's like, yeah, man, Shinra's dead. The company's gonna fall apart. And then you see a helicopter land. He's like, ah, oh, shit, I forgot he had a son. <laughs> <laughs> and out props pops Rufus Shinra. Rufus, uh, blonde hair man, young, like in his twenties. Uh, he wears like a weird, like all white pea coat with white pants. <laughs> Like you Rufus left. Shinra is the most tryhard character in a game that includes Cloud Strife. He is the perfect foil for Cloud. They are the he out tryhards Cloud so bad. Oh, so great! Rufus is so great. So they run out to confront him, and Rufus is like, "Oh, hey, how's it going? Oh, my dad's dead. Great." Uh, so you probably are wondering how I'm going to run this company. They're like, "Yeah, yeah, maybe you're going to make it more ethical." He's like, "Oh, yeah, I am <laughs> going to make it more ethical." Because you see, my dad believed in bribery and using power to pacify the people. I believe in fear. And they're like, ah. Uh. Anyways, I'm going to get into a big fight with you with my dumb dog. Oh, I lost. <laughs> Anyways, I'm going to escape via helicopter. <laughs> so immediately the jig is up. Like, all security forces are storming the building. And like, well, we need to escape. And so they decide to escape in the raddest way possible. Yeah. They steal a truck that has three wheels. Uh, one the wheel one the back wheel is uh in the center of the car so it's Mm. it's stable that kind that kind of car actually does exist yeah uh and cloud steals a motorcycle and then they escape via the highway uh they destroy like a a bunch of machines and whatnot kill a bunch of soldiers uh, and eventually get to the highway that leads out of um the unfinished highway that leads out of the city of midgar uh they rappel down from there and now they're like okay uh, we need to go stop Sephiroth, but first we're going to stop in a city called Calm, uh, which is going to be a break in the story. That's why it's mm-hmm. called Calm. Yep. And I'm going to tell you everything. And this is where the game opens up and becomes the traditional Final Fantasy RPG. Yeah. In a way that I think is to his detriment, to be perfectly honest. But Kind of, yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, because you spend roughly about five to six hours in Midgar, mm-hmm. and then you get thrown out into the into the game world, and you're like, oh, oh. hmm. I, no, no other area was really as well thought out as Midgard, was it? It really wasn't. Gold Saucer comes close, but comes close. But yeah, that's about it. Yeah. So, you know, all end up going to Calm, and they're like, "Okay, Cloud, tell us about Sephiroth. Tell us why he's evil and not the coolest person ever." And Cloud's like, "Well, listen, he is the coolest person ever. I got a lot of OC fan art that uh, will prove <laughs> that. But let me tell you the story." So. It turns out Cloud and Sephiroth went on a mission, I think something like four or five years ago or something like that, 
Sounds uh, right. Right after Cloud became a first-class soldier to Cloud's hometown of Nibbleheim, turns out there were some monsters that were in the reactor, and it was causing problems, and they're like, okay, we're gonna go, we'll take care of it. So upon arriving to the town, like, they meet up with Tifa and whatnot, who is a weird tour guide who wears a cowboy hat. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's two other Shinra soldiers there as well. And so... Like, Klaus, like, kind of, like, telling the story. Like, he goes and, like, he sees his mom. His mom's like, you should, like, totally get married to an older girl who can take care of you because you're, you're a little baby boy. But she's, <laughs> she says that endearingly. Uh, and, like, like he Klaus, like, goes up to, like, Tifa's room and whatnot. And, like, it's, it's, it's a little strange because, like, Tifa's, like, very quiet this entire time. She's also, like, kind of questioning Klaus. Like, hey, you went up to my room? Uh, what was it like? And she's like, he's like, oh, it's like this. Like, oh, yeah, okay, I guess that's how my room is. Because like Tifa's like, huh? Something about this doesn't really add up. Because mm-hmm. I was there, and but I'm not going to contribute anything. Klaus telling the story; most of the facts seem right. I'm probably just confused. So eventually, they get up to the reactor, and um, like they find out that oh, Hojo's been doing weird experiments here. That Hojo been putting people in these Mako pods and creating monsters. And Sephiroth's like, yeah, yeah, that's Hojo. And then it's like, is it? Mm-hmm. Should it be? Well, Sephiroth immediately decides, huh, maybe this isn't how it's supposed to be, because he's like, you know, I'm a lot stronger than everyone else. Wait, did Hojo do this to me? Has been Hojo been doing this to a lot of people? <laughs> and he immediately just starts slashing all the different pods and whatnot, and he's like, I'm incredibly upset about this now. <laughs> I'm gonna be... I'm, we need to go back to the mansion that's in the center of town that Shinra owns. I need to look some files. Cloud, you need to leave me alone for like a week. Sound good? Sound good. So Cloud does that, and a week later he goes down to the basement and goes to the library. And Sephiroth's like, hey, traitor, how's it going? Cloud's like, oh. Traitor? He's like, yeah, yeah, traitor. You're just a human who just sucks up all the energy from the planet. Unlike me, a Cetra. And Cloud's like, what are you talking about? It's like, no, you see, I was created as a clone of the Cetra. I was given Cetra cells, and I am the... I carry on their legacy, and their legacy is to not abuse the planet, unlike unlike Shinra, and I am going to go and stop them. I'm going to destroy it all, and I'm going to kill all humans in the process. Cloud's like, uh, buddy, buddy, do you, do you want to go outside? He's like, actually, <laughs> I do want to go outside. It's like, Cloud's like, that's great to kill everyone. It's like, no. No. Hmm. And Cloud's like, where are you going to go after that? And Sephiroth's like, I'm going to go see Mother. And Cloud's like, uh. Sephiroth's theme then, like, kicks in. And, like, Cloud, when he exits the mansion, sees that he's already set the entire village on fire and <laughs> killed the vast majority of people. Yeah. And he's Cloud, very efficient. He's very efficient. Those Cetra, they are very efficient. Mm-hmm. So he follows them up to the reactor, uh, and where he sees uh, that Sephiroth has killed Tifa's dad. That cutscene where we saw Tifa like seeing how she hates Shinra and whatnot, like she grabs like uh, his sword and to go and like murder Sephiroth with it. Like Sephiroth just literally just like backhands her essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And like Cloud like picks her up. He's like, "Hey, listen, you're gonna be okay." And she's like, "Oh, you kept your promise." He's like, "Yep, totally did." And he watches as Sephiroth goes into a room just labeled Genova. So Cloud follows him in there, and it turns out Sephiroth thinks Genova is his mom because he thinks Genova is a Cetra. And it turns out Genova's been just in this weird, like, tube. Mm-hmm. And, like, he just, like, breaks her out. And, like, 
Cloud is like, you murdered everybody, including my mom. I am going to kill you. And several ops like, go ahead and try, buddy. And then it fades to white. And everyone's like, well, what happened? And Cloud's like, man, no, I woke up and he wasn't there anymore. And like, <laughs> he's like, guess he died. <laughs> and so it's like, all right. Okay, yeah. So he's back and he's going to murder all of humanity. Uh, do we know how he's going to do that? And like, well, not sure yet, but I bet you we're going to find out. Anyways, let's go and um, let's go and follow him. So now Shinra like realizes that Sephiroth's trying to kind of do the same thing and also mm. is trying to like ultimately he's trying to find the promised land. So he's like, well, we're going to follow him as well. And, like try to get to the promised land before him. So now you have three different parties all trying to get to the promised land to do something bad uh, or do something good. And basically the entire rest, entire rest of the first half of the game is all around this. So. We're going to kind of just do some cliff notes as we go through this right. a little bit quicker because boy, a, a lot like, of things. Yeah, a lot of things happen that don't matter that much. Yeah. So to start with, uh, you end up recruiting a weird 16 year old ninja by the name of Yuffie, who is, <sighs> who is from Wutai. Uh, she is here to steal all the material so she can give it to Wutai and so they can resume their war against Shinra. Uh, she's basically kind of like a comic relief character. Who's yeah. going to get a lot of prominence in the th in the sequels and in spinoff games? So look forward to more of her. She's I won't. She is very very precocious. That's basically her yeah. entire thing. Um, you also end up getting back to uh, Nibelheim, which you find is just basically has a bunch of like weird actors who pretend that nothing actually ever happened to the village. It turns mm -hmm. out Shinra just literally rebuilt the entire village. It was just like, hey, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Which Cloud and Tifa are not cool with. No. Uh, they also find that there's apparently a vampire that lives there by the name of Vincent. <laughs> Basically a, a very brooding man with long black hair and like a red scarf uh, who was experimented on by Hojo and somehow was turned into a vampire in the process, but not a real mm -hmm. one. He could turn into monsters. Uh, right, yeah. Also not important in this game, but very important in the spinoffs. Right. The, Vincent is basically 90s Nomura going, hey, look at this character. Isn't this character cool? And 90s anime fans going, whoa, that character is cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then 2000 Square will go, hey, that character was cool. We should make him a thing. We should make him a thing. And then everyone will go, no. No, maybe you shouldn't, actually. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be nice if you didn't. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, so like... All throughout this, by the way, you're running into these like weird, sickly men in black hoods, like with like their arms tattooed with different numbers, who are talking about how they need to get to the reunion, and like mm -hmm. just are oblivious to the outside world, which is all sorts of kind of strange. Um, and you literally see them just like literally all over the place, and they seem to be following the same path that Cloud is following mm -hmm. him and his team, which is not ominous at all. So that happens. Uh, you end up running to this town called Gungaga, which um, it turns out uh, Eris' uh, ex-boyfriend used to live there. And we find out his name was Zack. Uh, Zack, it turns out, basically looks like Cloud, but with black hair. Mm. And um, was apparently like super cool and outgoing and like super duper strong and great at everything. Yeah, neat guy. Uh, Everyone loved him. Yeah, everybody loved him. Uh, and Eris is like, yeah, he was my boyfriend. He was the first class soldier I was telling you about. And Cloud's like, you know, there's not a whole lot of first-class soldiers. I'm pretty sure I would have heard of him. Right. And Eric's like, yeah, that's weird. Let's not talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Finally, though, they end up at this place called uh, Gold Saucer. Now, Gold Saucer is this basically amusement park Disneyland sort of thing. Place of excess. Las Vegas, mm -hmm. as was described to me. Uh, sort of place where all fun and games sort of happen. Uh, basically right. built on the remains of this old mining town called Coral, which uh, Barrett used to live in. Uh, and, and in a funny twist, Barrett's like, man, yeah, this is where my old town used to be. And everyone's like, we're going to have fun here. And Barrett's like, <laughs> you assholes, no, you're so not. <laughs> and so he gets angry and runs off. But then it turns out a bunch of people get murdered with a by a guy with a gun on his arm. Barrett gets blamed. Everyone gets arrested and thrown in jail. Uh, it turns out that, no, actually, um, when Barrett's old town was destroyed, it was murdered by a bunch of Shinra soldiers and... Uh, one of those people they got murdered was this man named Dine, whose arm got shot off, just like Barrett's arm got shot off. And he also got a gun attached to it, just like Barrett's. And so they end up getting into, like, a big old, dumb old fight. Uh, Dine ends up killing himself. We learned that Marlene was actually his daughter, and Barrett has been raising him. And with that, they're able to escape. And, like, the owner of Goldtoss is like, hey, sorry for falsely falling and throwing you to prison. How about you have a car? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that all happens. Uh, uh, finally, we end up at probably the next really major plot-related place called uh, the Cosmo Canyon. Cosmo Canyon is a place where all the hippies live, and mm -hmm. uh, specifically a man by the name of Bugnahanan. I believe that's how you pronounce that. Now, well, this, I'm just going to short it to Bugnan just to make this a little easier. So Bugnan yeah, yeah. is this old man who could somehow float, and his big thing is that he is the one who created... Uh, the theories behind the planet's life stream and how Mako and the life stream are one and the same and that by burning it you're basically killing the planet and how mm -hmm. everybody who dies eventually goes back to life stream so by burning it you're essentially killing people twice and eventually you'll drain the planet of its energy and it'll literally just fall apart mm -hmm. uh, it turns out Avalanche was formed here after Barrett came here uh, it was just like this sounds rad I'm going to form a cool eco-terrorist group <laughs> uh, and this is also the place where Red 13 lives uh, Red 13 and his uh, dog family who are now all dead and he's the last person of his dog family because uh, it turns out his father uh, basically uh, defended the uh, the Cosmo Canyon from like a weird army that's never really elaborated on and got petrified. Yeah it's like a ghost samurai army. Yeah it was a ghost samurai army and then he got shot a bunch and petrified but it's still alive and then when Red 13 finds him like Ghost statue cries, and Fred 13 becomes proud of his father, who he thought actually abandoned him, but actually didn't. Right. So, that's pretty cool. But yeah, they basically... Go ahead. It, it's kind of... It's a fun character arc, and it playing it at, like, 16, it resonated with me, because Red 13's whole thing is he's, like, like 80-something years old. Yeah. But his race lives a long time, so he's essentially a teenager. Mm -hmm. And this is, like, his coming to terms with his father arc. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's neat. That's a good, like, teenage boy arc. It totally is. And, like, I'm blowing through it just because we're already at mm. minute 30 and whatnot. But it is a, it is really good. Just like how Baron yeah. and Dine is incredibly good. Yes. Like, it's it's one of those things where we, we sort of have to cut a few things for time. Right, yeah. But as, as you're, like, I don't want to call them side characters, but not main character, like story arcs loyalty missions if you will it's sort of like yeah these are these are good they're really fleshing out the characters yeah totally yeah they, it's it's just the thing where they just do a really really good job of making you care about all your side characters because mm -hmm. like really there's only 
like four main characters in this entire thing. Basically, yeah. Uh, and the other five really aren't, but they do a good job of being like, no, these people are important. Here's why. Right. Well, and then there's Yuffie, but and then there's Yuffie, but you know, they do a better job for Yuffie in the remake already. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that much. Fair enough. Uh, so, so they get through that. They eventually end up at a place called Rocket Town, uh, where we end up meeting our, I believe, our final party member, a man by the name of yes. Sid Highwind, a gruff, I think technically only thirty-five, but still thirty-five-year-old yeah. man with gray hair who was supposed to be the first man in space, but then. His, well, when his thought, his asshole girlfriend basically <laughs> caused him, <laughs> kept him from I, dying in space. Essentially. I forget how much of a problem Sid is as a character. Yeah. So basically, as we see in a flashback, Sid was supposed to be the first man in space and he was going to be launched on his rocket. But like Shara, his girlfriend, well, I later girlfriend at that time just a fellow like engineer was rocket like, scientist yeah yeah he's like hey listen there's some problems with the oxygen tanks i'm gonna make sure they're fixed uh go ahead with the launch i know i'm gonna die but it's important for space travel and, and sid's like hell no i'm not gonna do that and he aborts the launch and whatnot and after that shinra was like well we're not gonna fund this anymore and then after that basically they become boyfriend and girlfriend and shara more or less like feels bad and so is i kind of his servant yeah, it's, it's weird. And he's it's a in, really weird dynamic. He's incredibly emotionally abusive. He's like, where's my goddamn tea? Get these people their fucking yeah. tea. And it's like, as a person who has met people like that, it is really like, oh boy. Yeah, this one didn't age super well. No. And also probably didn't, wasn't that good at the time either. It's not. No. No. Ugh. He has, yeah. the, he has the second best limb break in the game. It's <laughs> unfortunate. Yeah. But yeah, Sid eventually is like, hey, yeah, man, I'm going to join up with you because, you know, I I want to fulfill my dream of eventually going to space and Shinra's not going to do that. And I don't know. You seem like cool people. Don't really believe it's this like, plan stuff. It's like, are, are, we, are we going to space? Is that our plan? If it's if it is, I'm going with you. But yeah, his his reasonings for joining the team are kind of tenuous, honestly. Yeah, it's really more like Shinra opens fire on him when he's near his plane, and he goes, "Well, whatever, I'm joining up with you guys now." Right. So eventually, they learn that okay, there's this thing called the Black Materia, and it turns out that Sephiroth is after it. And with the Black Materia, that might open the way to the Promised Land. So we need to get the Black Materia first. Right. Also, we haven't really. Oh, Even, there's somebody, oh my god, there's somebody We haven't talked about Materia. We have not talked about Materia, we have not talked about a very important person. So first off, Materia. Materia is crystallized Mako. When uh -huh. Mako is like in a place for a long time, it'll crystallize, and you can use Materia to do all sorts of weird things, like cast fire magic, or give you the ability to steal. Right. Um, <laughs> With, yeah, that is weird, isn't it? Yeah, there's crime Materia, as it turns out. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's this very prominent thing that's just kind of all throughout. Like you literally, there's stores that sell it. Uh, mm. So it's uh, it's it's just kind of a known thing. And uh, reactors actually like as part of the byproducts of uh, producing energy from Mako actually produce materia as well. So that's how Shinra has a bunch of it. Right. Uh, and so yeah, like black materia is considered a very very powerful version of it. It should also be noticed that Aerith herself has the materia, the white materia, but apparently it's completely useless. Mm. Uh, so, 
before they go to this place called the Temple of the Ancients, where the Black Materia supposedly is, it's like the last stronghold of the Cetra, uh, back at the Gold Saucer, uh, it turns out while Cloud is on a date with one of four people, either Aerith, Tifa, Yuffie, or if you manage to upset everybody, Aerith, <laughs> which is canonically the right choice. Their date yes. is great. Um, yeah. You end up running into a animatronic cat that is riding a giant animatronic uh, stuffed animal. And his name is Keith Sith. He's a fortune teller. And he's like, hey, how's it going? You know, I'm going to tell your fortune. Oh, man, somebody's going to die soon. Huh? Hey, he's going to follow you around and we're going to see what happens. You cool with that? And everyone's like, no. And he's like, I don't care. I'm following you. <laughs> just joined your party. Now, it's shortly after this that, like, the Turks just keep running into your party and trying to stop you. Mm -hmm. And Cloud's like, oh, man, it seems like we have a traitor. I wonder who it is. I wonder if it's one of my eco-terrorist friends. Uh, the girl <laughs> got kidnapped by Shinra. The, um, the Wutai uh, ninja girl. The, the weird vampire. The dog. Literally maybe, everyone who has beef with Shinra. Yeah, or maybe this cat person. That's nah, probably not the cat person. Probably not. Anyways, so uh, did we did we go to Wu Tai during all this, or is that after this part? You can go to Wu Tai at any time. Um, okay. Wu Tai's big thing is that they are really upset about losing the war. Uh, yeah. Because now Shinra's encroaching in on their territory, and yeah, Yuffie's dad runs uh, the entire country and whatnot. And mm. their their entire country is basically like we're all ninjas and samurai. Right. Uh, Doc Corneo shows up there, kidnaps uh, Yuffie presumably to have sex with her which is uh, yeah. but not before but in line with his character in line with his character yes but not before strapping her to a mountainside yeah that was weird <laughs> along with uh, another member of the turks by the name of elena and then you and a turks uh -huh. team up to basically beat him up it's fun uh yeah so i just wanted to touch on wutai very briefly because it's basically when the turks become my favorite characters because the way they interact oh, with each other yeah. is so fantastic it's actually really like, good yeah they have this really good dynamic where like reno and root are buds and elena's like the new kid on the team mm -hmm. and reno's like really dismissive and antagonistic towards her but rude like kind of babies her and is like mm -hmm. now now make sure you know Pay attention to your to your loadout and make sure your material are in order. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, yeah. And then in the bar, they have such a great scene with your team as well. They do. And that that's my actual favorite part, which is you run into them there. But they're on, like, PTO. Like, they're on vacation. Mm -hmm. And Reno's like, fuck off. Yeah. I'm like, on vacation. I'm off the clock. I don't want to deal with you. Go away. Yeah, like Elena like stands up and was like, we gotta fight him. Like, Reno, He's like, Reno, no. Like, no. Do you see this? Do you see this drink in my hand? This drink is I'm getting off warm. The clock. <laughs> and it's my favorite. It's like he's just about it's just the job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If he's not getting paid, he doesn't care. Yeah, that is one A to a one B scene. That's also my favorite with the Turks much later in the game. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's very good. Yeah, thank you for thank you for mentioning that because yeah, absolutely. I will always mention that scene. It's so good. So yeah, they go to the Temple of the Ancients. And they like run through there. They find a a giant mural, and it should be noted that all throughout this, by the way, all throughout the game, Cloud is just occasionally having voices head telling him to do certain things and whatnot, and collapsing mm. over, uh, having literal out of body experiences. So like, Cloud's a little messed up right now. Mm-hmm. And it only gets more messed up when he ends up 
seeing this giant mural of this giant meteor that's about to slam into the city. And then Sephiroth shows up and he's like, oh, hey, how's it going? He's the only <laughs> one who can see him, though. <laughs> yeah. And Sephiroth's, hey, he's like, yeah, listen, man, the reunion's going to happen soon. Soon with the black materia, I will be able to summon meteor, destroy everything. And then from there, I'll be able to absorb all the energy and become God. Because basically, he's going to create such a giant wound in the planet that the planet's going to try to heal himself. And using that, he'll just absorb it all, and everything's going to be great. And Cloud's like, yeah, oh. okay. Oh. And um, this is a bit of a blind spot that I, I can't believe I, I haven't mentioned. This is not the mm. first time you've run into Sephiroth throughout this game. Mm, like, right. There are multiple other times where you'll run into Sephiroth, including one prominent time where you run into him. And he just transforms into a giant monster that's called, that's, uh, turns out is also called Genova. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, supposedly his mom. You just fight his mom randomly at one point. <laughs> but then upon defeating it, it just like, is like a weird tentacle on the ground. You're like, oh, was this right. Sephiroth the entire time? What? I really like the way the game like does that to build the mystery, even going as far as to like use the battle UI to be like, oh yeah, Genova. And you're like, what what the hell is Genova? Mm -hmm. Like at first you were like, oh, it's the headless corpse in the tank. And then it's like, well, was that other corpse, other corpse in the other tank? And also it's, it's just a blob tentacle monster. Yeah. Uh, that sometimes takes the form of Sephiroth. And you're like, what the hell is happening with this thing? Yeah, it's, it's real. It really just, you know, screws with your mind a little bit in a way that's like, it, like it adds intentional confusion to the story, but in a way that mm. I don't think takes away from it at all. No, it is it is building mystery, and it does. And such, I think it does it pretty effectively. And a lot of this affects Cloud as well, which like mm -hmm. people around Cloud are like, "Hey, you okay?" Like, and like slowly your team starts to like kind of starts to distrust Cloud a little bit mm -hmm. because it's very clear that like as much as he's trying to keep it together, he cannot keep it together. Right, but he also won't open up to anyone about what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, 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 as a as part of his character arc, like that's the thing is if he explained to his friends or whatever he sees them as what was going on, like they might be able to help him or at least would understand. But he refuse refuses to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, seeing him like finally do that over the course of the game is one of the most satisfying things. Yeah. The part is about his character arc. So Sephiroth lays his entire plan out literally flies like at the screen and then everyone's like oh boy okay well i don't see the black materia here did sephiroth already get it and then that's when we learn oh no the black materia is actually the the temple itself it's just there's a device here that'll shrink it down to actually make it portable it's like well how can we do that and not get crushed and that's when kate sh uh, kate sis shows up and is like oh hey by the way yeah i was a spy the entire time Mm, Sorry yeah, about that. Anyways, how about I'm going to redeem myself, though. I'm going to crush myself. That way you can get the black materia. That sound good. Everyone's like, yeah, not cool. You're not living. Whatever. So <laughs> they all leave. And in the scene that attempts to be like heartfelt, like he talks about like what's it <sighs> like to be real and whatnot. He activates the mechanism that basically crushes it's so him. random it's so random because like he activates the mechanism to crush himself and whatnot to create the black materia or, or mm -hmm. make it down to his like actual size uh like your team collects it and he cases two shows up is like oh hey how's hey, it going 
I have all the memories of the previous cave civs, don't right. so don't worry. It's like, what was the point? <laughs> yep, yeah, there was no point. It immediately undercut itself, and later in the game will be undercut even harder. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So so Cloud is down in like the essentially the crater where the temple used to be with uh, Aerith and is like, well, we got this. Now all we have to do is make sure that Sephiroth never gets it. <laughs> and then unfortunately, Sephiroth uh, just like takes over Cloud's body. Like you have like mm-hmm. an out of body experience where you control like a little little boy Cloud, while uh, like while uh, like actual Cloud like slowly, very slowly walks over to a now like like a version of Sephiroth has just now appeared to give him the black materia, mm-hmm. and like. Everyone's like, no, don't do it. And Cloud's like, no, I don't want to do this. But unfortunately, he can't stop himself from doing that. And upon doing that, Sephiroth disappears. And so everyone's like, Cloud, why'd you do that? But Cloud's still out of his mind, immediately then turns around and just starts beating the hell out of Aerith. Right. Like, tackles her to the ground, starts like, wailing on her, and then passes out. <laughs> and then during this, he has a dream of Aerith. And Aerith's like, oh, hey, how's it going, Cloud? And Cloud's like, oh, sorry for everything. I wasn't in control. And she's like, Nah, don't worry. That's okay. I know you weren't. Uh, don't worry about it, buddy. He's like, yeah, I just, I, I don't know why I can't control myself. She's like, yeah, you probably should concentrate on that. Like, she literally is like, uh-huh. you shouldn't concentrate on trying to, to stop Sephiroth. You need to focus on yourself. Mm-hmm. I have the means to stop Sephiroth. I'm going to this place called called the Northern Crater. I There's a city, like one of the last cities of the Cetra is up there. And I'm going to do what I need to do to stop him from summoning Meteor. You don't have to worry about me. And so Cloud wakes up and is like, hey, Eris gone north. We have to follow her. And everyone's like, Cloud, are you sure you're up first? He's like, shut up. Yes, we've got to go. Mm-hmm. So you go to this ancient city. And after like walking through this, you end up uh, going to this um, this pool of water. And you see that Aerith is like down there praying with her white materia that she had. And you, like, walk up to, like, you know, see her and whatnot, and, like, Cloud immediately gets taken over and, like, pulled out a sword and is about to kill her. But, like, Tifa and the rest of the team, like, snap him out of that. But not before Aerith, like, like looks up at him, smiles, and then Sephiroth just shows up and then stabs her through the back and kills her. Uh, you see the white materia fall into the water, like, slightly glowing, but clearly not activated. Mm-hmm. And then Aerith just falls over and dies. Ah. And then Cloud, like, grabs her, her body and is, like, completely distraught. And Sephiroth just starts monologuing. He's like, yes, I will soon have control of the planet and whatnot. And Cloud's like, shut up. I don't care about that. I don't care. You just killed her. I, I might have loved her. I'm not really sure if I did or didn't, but I knew she was important to me. What is wrong with you? And Sephiroth's like, none of this matters. She's just back on the live stream, and soon I will absorb it. Blah, blah, blah. Also, here's now Genova. Is back. Genova again. Mm-hmm. And while Eristeam is playing, you end up fighting Genova again. Uh, it is such a good scene. I know, mm-hmm. I, say, I know I basically say this every 10 minutes or so, but this is, this is a scene that launched everything from a pornographic website to so <laughs> many fan fictions. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like, it, uh, it has had such a resonance with fans and whatnot that like it was a common way to spoil people uh, was right. just to type in Eris dies uh, into like any sort of like discussion or whatnot. Uh, 
theories about how to revive Aerith were posted all over the internet. Um, people were really messed up by this because Aerith is such a great character. And the fact that she died out of nowhere, mm -hmm. like, really messed people up. Like, and the fact that, and it, it's really strengthened by the scene where Erisim starts playing whatnot. Right. Sephiroth's monologuing, Cloud just not caring about that. And then the fight with Genova right afterwards where the theme still plays. Mm-hmm. Like, it's good. It's, it's incredibly effective. And, like, it is one of the iconic scenes of video games mm -hmm. to this day, sort of for a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. And after you defeat Genova, Cloud just walks down with Eris' body to the water and just lets her sink into there as her final resting place. So the team's like, well, we can't cry over this. We have to we have to keep going to the Northern Crater because Sephiroth right. has a black materia. We, we're the only ones who could stop him now. Well, and specifically Cloud says that. Like, yeah. everyone else is like, are you good, dude? And he's like, I have to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, this is now so much more personal. Right. And so they end up going to this place called the Icicle Inn. Uh, they discover that this place is the home of like a person by the name of Professor Gast, who actually ended up knowing Eris' mom, uh, Ifalina. Uh, it turns out, in fact, Professor Gast is uh, Eris' dad, and uh, he was a study. He studied the Centra and whatnot, and that's where we learned that. Uh, first off, Severoth probably isn't a Centra. Uh, it turns out that thousands of years ago. A weird creature just slammed into the planet, who then pretended was like a good person, but then slowly mm. infected all the center with her cells. This person was Genova. Well, so I believe Genova was one of the Cetra she infected, or at least that was the designation. I was unclear on this part. Uh, my no, my understanding is that Genova was what slammed into the planet. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and. But it, essentially, it just it tried to corrupt everybody by using its cells. By using its cells, right. it could control them and whatnot. And we also learned that apparently Genova can kind of regenerate itself by calling its parts of its body back to itself. Mm. Uh, and yeah, we learned that um, some soldiers were had the Genova cells put into them. Uh, uh, people like Sephiroth, for instance, <laughs> which mm -hmm. is why they're like a little bit crazy and whatnot. <laughs> a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it basically ends with the Professor Gas getting gunned down by Shinra and Infalina having to escape, um, which then eventually she ends up getting wounded, ends up dying in Midgar, mm -hmm. and that's how Aerith came to live in Midgar. So they then learn all this go, that's crazy, uh, snowboard down a mountainside <laughs> and climb their way into the northern crater. Um, now, upon getting there, they see that Rufus and the rest of Shinra have arrived, and like... After defeating another version of Genova, they actually get the Black Materia back. And Cloud thinking straight is like, listen, you cannot trust me. I have strong urges to go see Sephiroth that I don't think I can control. One of you, hold on to the Black Materia. Don't worry about it. Just No matter what, do not give it back to me under any circumstances. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Sephiroth or Genova or somebody can impersonate people and immediately like... Like, if you give it to Barrett, like, impersonates Tifa, and is like, oh, man, Cloud is injured. He needs the Black Materia for reasons. And Barrett's like, mm -hmm. I'm an idiot. <laughs> or vice versa. Right. So eventually they get into the Northern Crater, and they look up, and they see that, oh, Sephiroth's, half of Sephiroth's body is just encased in this weird ice that's also gel. It's like gel ice. Mm -hmm. um, they're like, 
And I also see like these giant machine, like bioorganic machines that are like, you know, almost like Godzilla like. And like Hojo, who happens to be there with the rest of the Shinra group, is like, oh, those must be the weapons. Yeah, the planet created these things to help defend the planet against <laughs> like extraterrestrial threats or anything that might threaten its death. Man, that's so cool. And every, literally everyone's like, Hojo, shut up. This is not important. <laughs> Anyways, the team member um, who got the black materia back gives it to Cloud. And Cloud's like, why did you give this to me? It's like, oh, yeah, you said you need it. It's like, oh, no, I didn't. And then immediately ends up getting controlled by Sephiroth. Yeah. He then flies up, gives the black materia to Sephiroth, which then starts glowing. The weapons then wake up and everyone's like, oh, we need to escape like a giant like um, a giant valley opens beneath them. Cloud's limp body falls into the life stream, which is essentially a certain death. Like if you fall uh -huh. into the life stream, you essentially die of Mako poisoning. Right. So Cloud's dead and everyone's like, we need to leave. So they all get on board the high wind, which is Shinra's like flying airship. And they're like, man, this seems really, really bad. It's like all the weapons wake up to go and defend the planet now. And so, we cut to roughly about a week later. Like, Tifa kind of, like, during all this got knocked out, and we, they mm -hmm. wake up in one of, like, Shinra cities and whatnot. Um, a Shinra city that has an incredibly giant gun called the Sister Ray. <laughs> uh, that's going to become very prominent soon. Yep. Uh, and, like, man, Barrett, what happened? Barrett's, like, just opens up the curtain, and we see an incredibly giant meteor <laughs> that is, like, the size of the moon is slowly making its way to the planet. And so it's like, well... Seems like we're messed up here. We've seems uh, seems like we're gonna have no chance to stop this. And Barrett's like, yeah, kinda. So Rufus shows up and is like, yeah, it's real messed up. People are freaking out, but don't worry, I have a plan for that. Everyone's like, well, what's your plan? It's like, we're gonna execute you uh, live on TV and blame everything on you. And okay, Tifa and Tifa are like, oh, well, they don't like that, so they immediately escape. <laughs> like Tifa literally breaks out of a gas chamber. Uh, has a weird literal slap fight with Scarlet, despite being a martial arts master. Yeah, that that part's weird. That part's weird. And Casey, like during this entire time, like helps him escape. He's like, "Hey, listen, I'm thoroughly on your side by now. So, mm -hmm. listen, I got you. Get out of here. Steal the high wind, um, and go and figure out a way to stop this." So the first mission is to find Cloud, and they find out that Cloud's this small village, uh, completely comatose. Basically, since he's gotten Maku poison so bad, everyone's like, we're not really sure how he's alive, but he is brain dead. Mm. He's never going to recover. Tifa is like completely broken by this. Is like, listen, I, I'm not in a state where I can go and help you save the world. Mm -hmm. World's probably going to end. I want to be by Cloud. I'm going to help him out. And everyone's like, all right, no, respect. So they go and like are going to try to figure out a plan to stop everything. Sid takes control of the team. He's like, listen, I got this. I heard that Shinra is going to basically send shoot a rocket up at the at meteor with uh, filled with all the like huge material that's all in um, through the reactors and whatnot. Uh, we think this is a bad idea because they're literally going to just destroy life energy for no reason. So we're going right. to go stop them. And so that's what basically the next half of the game is: is you like boarding trains and derailing them, and mm -hmm. like you know sneaking into submarine bases and doing all sorts of weird stuff. This is this is a weird part of the game that I don't know if it works super well. It's not very memorable. It isn't. It, it really isn't. And all during that, you're also fighting basically the weapons that the planet has sent out. 
because mm-hmm. they're trying to destroy everything Shinra related because they're like the, Shinra's destroying the planet right and we are here to stop it uh, one of them gets its head blown off by the sister ray which in a scene that's really rad yeah and like and then during that also um, Thid actually manages to uh, fulfill his dream of getting shot into space because they hijacked the missile that was going to be uh, used to blow up the blow up the meteor uh Turns out the same one that they were going to launch in space to begin with. Turns mm-hmm. out that oxygen tank that was defective was defective. He's like, oh, I should not have been abusive to my girlfriend after all. <laughs> so it's just like, no shit. Lesson learned. Lesson learned. But point is, they get all the, the huge material and get mm. it away from Shinra. And the missile that does slam into the meteor doesn't stop it anyways. Right. So they end up going back and visiting Tifa. Uh, during this time of... Another weapon ends up attacking it, and Tifa and Cloud end up falling into the live stream. Now, during there, though, they end up in this, like, weird dream sequence where they're able to talk to each other. And Tifa's, like, straight up, like, hey, Cloud, who are you? And Cloud's like, oh, I'm a first-class soldier. And she's like, no, you're not. Mm-hmm. I need to stop you right there, because we got to go back to your story of coming back to Nibelheim. I kept this to myself, because, like, a lot of the details <laughs> sounded right. Mm-hmm. But you were never there. And so we flash back to like the original scene of like Cloud walking into the town with uh, Sephiroth, but instead of Cloud being there, it's Zack. Um, mm. And so she's like, "Yeah, Zack was there." Uh, but Cloud's like, "But I remember going up to your room." She's like, "Well, yeah, that's what I want to figure out. I want to figure out if you're even real, because to be honest, I'm not even sure Cloud ever existed. Uh, because it turns out since Cloud like." has had so many interactions with Sephiroth and whatnot. He, if he hears things, he like internalizes them as memories himself. And he's right. able to like regurgitate my word for word. So it's like what's real and what's not is very loosey goosey with them. And so like they end up going through different memories that happened. Um, like when we get to like Tifa's room and whatnot, it flashes back to a scene where cloud was like hanging out in Tifa's room. Cause Tifa ended up getting injured. And we find out that Cloud and Tifa were never friends. Uh, it turns out Cloud was like a loner kid and all the other kids hated his ass. Um, but then like one day Tifa ran off to the mountains and Cloud was the only one who ran off after her to try to like get her to not do something dangerous. But then like she ended up getting injured and like everything was blamed on Cloud, which made him even more unpopular. But it caused Cloud to be like, no, I want to become a first class soldier. I want to become strong so I can protect somebody like Tifa. It's so, like, Stuff like that ends up resonating with Tifa. It's like, oh yeah, no, that makes sense. I remember that memory. That's an mm-hmm. actual memory. You do actually exist. Right. But she's like, what about all the stuff that actually happened when you supposedly came back five years ago? And then that's what we learned the truth. It turns out one of the Shinra soldiers was actually a cloud. He kept his mask on the entire time, though, because he was embarrassed. He applied to be a soldier, and he completely failed. He wasn't mm-hmm. strong enough. He wasn't good enough. And so embarrassed about it, he's like, I just can't, can't bear to like, show my face around here. But when, but when Tifo ran after Sephiroth to like fight him, like Zack was the first one to show up, and got immediately washed by Sephiroth. Right. Cloud then shows up right afterwards, like takes off his mask and like, like uh, carries like Tifo away, and that's how she like realizes, oh yeah, you did fulfill your promise. Like he sees like then like Sephiroth angrily walk away like with Genova's head in his hand, <laughs> like he like runs after him like like stop him and like several just stabs him in the, like in the chest with a sword he's like lifts him up off the ground and is like 
Listen, kid, don't push your luck. But Cloud, in a feat of strength, lifts the sword off, throws him into the wall, and causes him to fall into a life stream, seemingly killing him. Mm-hmm. He then passes out there, but in doing so, proved to himself that he had the strength to actually take him on. And so with all of that, he was like, no, you are real. Not only are you real, you can do this. You just have to be truthful with yourself about who you are. And with that, all the memories come back to Cloud and like all the like weird personality shifts that he has all mold into one. And he wakes up. And then they all end up coming back onto the high wind. And Cloud's like, hey, listen, I got to be a level with you. I was never a soldier. I was, ex- after everything that happened in Nibelheim, I was experimenting on Hojo. I was given Genova cells, which is why I was kind of going crazy. And I was subjected to the same treatments that soldiers were, but I never made it. But I still want to stop him. I feel like I am the only one to stop him, and I want your help to do that. Everyone's like, hell yeah, man, we, we're definitely going to do this. Baron was like, straight up like, ain't no way we're going to get off this train. It's mm. great. And, go ahead. So, uh, if this is a good point, I want to talk about this scene. Yeah, go um, ahead. Because it's kind of the most important in the game. It is. And I think it works incredibly well. It does. It's, yes. Um, so, for some context, I did not play Final Fantasy VII when it came out. I played it when I was like 16, which was around 2003, somewhere slightly before Advent Children came out. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the point that I started playing it, I already knew Aerith dies. Yeah. Like that, that was a known spoiler at that point. The twist about Zack is the game's actual spoiler. Yeah. It is the thing that no one talks about and the thing that everyone sort of keeps on the down low because it is, not only is it a plot twist, it is essential to the game's theme of conviction and self-actualization. Hmm. And it is, it is the moment where Cloud trying to be something that he's not and trying to present himself sort of as like uh, the person that he thinks he should be as opposed to the person he is sort of Mm. falls away. Yeah. All this cool brooding stuff that he does is just Zach's mannerisms. It it literally is everything from the way he spins his sword. Mm -hmm. The fact that he actually uses Zach's sword, the Buster sword of Zach's originally. Yes. Um, but it, it is a misappropriation of it. And mm-hmm. that is why it, it comes off as like lame and dorky and try hard is because Zach acted that way because that's Zach was just that kind of guy. And he didn't do it that way. Zach was a very outgoing and friendly person. Mm-hmm. Cloud is not that person. So in trying to act the same way, it comes off as a different personality that he's frankly annoying. Yeah. Um, so I really, like, that reveal that, like, Cloud effectively had amnesia the whole time, and he thought he was someone he wasn't, and it was all, it was actually Zack all along, Zack was the cool guy, Zack was the hero, is, like, a twist that should be kind of, if nothing else, it should be really hard to do, Mm -hmm. but the game actually pulls it off and pulls you through it. And you, you really manages to get you to follow along mm-hmm. and buy into it. And you know what I think is like the one, it's a very small scene, but the one thing that happens right at the end of this entire thing that I, I think is what really makes it work mm-hmm. is how Tifa finds Cloud again. Cloud is just basically completely knocked out, like out of mm-hmm. his mind, vegetative state. Um, 
at the train station outside the Sector 7 slump when Tifa just runs into yes. him. And it's like, yeah. Cloud, hey, what's going on? And like, he sees her, snaps out of it, and realizes, I need to be this cool person because I've always said I was going to be this cool person. Right. I was always going to be the one protector. And that's when he just jumps in that personality. Yeah. And that's what makes it work. And it, and it does so by like, there's like this high card, like white flash that it does. Like it lasts mm. like, like a second or two that kind of indicate that something weird's happening. It happens right. there. And then Cloud starts acting like Cloud. Yeah. And I think that's what ties exactly everything you said together with like how it's like the split personality, but it's not really him. It's a pale imitation. He starts it right. right there in an attempt to just prove to Tifa he's he was the man that he was trying to be. Right. And it again, I think it ties into if you had to identify the game's like narrative themes, I would say it's about conviction and self-actualization. Mm-hmm. And that m- basically everyone else in the party has some faith or belief or self-internal ideal that they are strongly convicted to and that pulls them through their ordeals or their arc is about finding that thing Mm -hmm. um you know red 13's arc is about understanding his father's conviction barrett is about reaffirming his conviction to dine and marlene and the planet and the things that he cares about Mm -hmm. um and Cloud has been awkward because he has basically been pursuing pursuing the wrong conviction the whole time. And so it's never felt right to him. Mm-hmm. And this is where he finally understands who he is and what he needs to pursue. And it, it is sort of the moment he becomes an RPG hero. Mm-hmm. Um, conversely, if I had to level a criticism against this moment and sort of the game as a whole, I never thought its handling of Tifa's character was especially fantastic. It's not great, yeah. And it, it, it might be partially localization's fault, um, but I, I felt, especially in this moment, the idea of her sort of place in the story is being Cloud's like the tether to his past mm-hmm. um and his his sort of you know the the window into who he really is to then have her character arc be oh yeah i found you that one time and um i recognized you and the things you were talking about didn't make sense and i just sort of let that go mm-hmm. And then you told us about your memories of Nibelheim and they didn't make sense. And I just sort of let it go. It's sort of like, okay. Yeah. Like that's, it's, it, the problem is that that's most of her role is to be the tether and she just ends up kind of sucking at it. Yeah, she does. And it's, it's one of those things that like, I really like about Final Fantasy VII Remake is that since you- yes. Because it ends up being a, I think why it fails in Final Fantasy VII is because it becomes a casualty to, hey, we have to stop Sephiroth. Yeah. And just like all the characters that get introduced, like pretty rapid fire one after another. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Seven Remake, you got four, you got four characters to pay attention to over Mm. the course of a 30 hour story. And you get more opportunities for Tifa to act as that tether, as that childhood friend. Yeah. And I, 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 I really like her characterization in Remake. I think yeah. it is very much improved. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the original game, I think it's kind of weak, and it sort of falters here. 
I think it's also very important to mention how even Tifa came into creation in the first place. She came mm. into creation because they killed Aerith off in the story and went, Right. We need another female protagonist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I think maybe some of her writing is a little bit of a casualty of that as well. Definitely, yeah. Like, she she is definitely in the background while Aerith is on, on screen. Yeah. While Aerith is around, Aerith is, like, the second character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all throughout the first disc is basically the Cloud and Aerith show. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, I, I, it's one of those things where I, I think they did as best they could in this in this instance, in this scene, but yeah, overall, right. over the course of the entire game, yeah. Yeah, it's a little wee. On the flip side, it also leads me... Now I have to talk about what is another one of my favorite things about this game. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I think I'm a in a little bit of a minority here. And I will never get what I want again about it, because if nothing else, Nomura does not agree with me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I absolutely love Sephiroth as a villain. He's pretty good. But I love Sephiroth because he's not real. He's not, I, no. I love Sephiroth because he's not actually the villain. He is a ghost of Cloud Pass that he thinks he has to defeat. Mm -hmm. But in reality, he already defeated Sephiroth. Sephiroth is dead the entire game. Yep. The villain is Genova. The villain is this cosmic thing that steals people's faces mm -hmm. and wears them to confront you. Like, I'm, I'm actually, like, Genova might be the designation of the thing, but I, I sincerely thought that the corpse in the tank was a Cetra that was cor corrupted by Genova. They thought it was. I think that's maybe where the confusion comes from. Is okay, that, I see. Because Shinra thinks Genova's a Cetra. And when we, we see the tapes between Gast and Infalina, uh, mm -hmm. Infalina's like, no, Genova is def. let me assure you, Genova is not a Cetra. Okay. But like that, that corpse isn't even a corrupted Cetra. It's like that, that is actually Genova's form. That is my understanding, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. But then like, it, it's interesting because like moving on, it's going to more and more take the form of Sephiroth. Mm -hmm. So like Genova is like this, it, it's almost not dedicated to a form. It is almost formless. Yeah. And it takes whatever it needs to accomplish its goal which is to consume and move on. Mm -hmm. And it, it is like, Cloud is so obsessed with the ghost of Sephiroth that he believes that Sephiroth is his enemy. Sephiroth is the thing he needs to defeat to be the hero. And it is in this moment, it, he, he realizes that that battle is already fought and done. Mm -hmm. There is a new battle, and in order to save the world, he needs to let go of that past and deal with this thing in front of him. Mm -hmm. And I, I love, I love that Sephiroth is not real the way that the game presents him as. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it's really, really good that throughout this game, you don't really know if Sephiroth is like truly there, if Genova's pulling all the strings, if Sephiroth mm -hmm. is pulling Genova's strings, or right. what have you. Because, yeah, like when you actually finally do see the actual Sephiroth, yeah, he's in a weird ice gel cube. Right. Um, unmoving, only half a body. 
and only able to do anything because hey, the black materia happens to be placed literally right next to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, you get all this information about how yeah, no, if you have Genova cells, it's gonna it's all going to congregate on in on itself to reform and right and like and you learn about how it's ability to corrupt and, and what have you it make yeah it makes it so it's like yeah well which one's the actual villain right and you see all the disciples that are you know presumably in the same position of sephiroth that they have these genova memories and influences pulling them to mm-hmm. the reunion mm-hmm. yep and then unfortunately <laughs> Well, it was a very lively debate of who the actual villain is. It has right. been since confirmed that no Sephiroth yeah. is pulling all the strings. Right. And and Sephiroth, cool sword man, is the true villain. And it's... I would actually be fine with it if it was, like, after this game that, yeah, some weird amalgamation of Sephiroth's Genova was. like, and it's just, right. But just in this game, it was Genova. But no, it the entire time it's Sephiroth. And yeah, I think it's... I think it's the wrong decision, but right. that's what they went with. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. So speaking of dealing with that, oh yeah, team's like, okay, well, we need to go and defeat um, defeat Sephiroth because they figure out, okay, there was a way, there is a way to stop uh, the Black Materia and Meteor. It's with the White Materia. It turns out that Aerith has entire time, and that Materia is Holy, mm-hmm. and with Holy, it can counteract Meteor and stop everything. Unfortunately, though, for one reason or another, Holy's being blocked from being cast, even though Aerith activated it. And they figure out it's probably the will of Sephiroth that's still hanging out of the North Crater, and they have to just go destroy that. They destroy that, Holy will happen, it'll stop Meteor, and everything will be fine. Third problem with that, though, is that the Northern Crater, ever since Meteor got cast, is now surrounded by a barrier. The good news, though, is that Shinra has a plan. The plan is that they got the sister ray, that giant cannon from that one city. They've mm-hmm. attached it to the main reactor in Midgar, and they're going to use that to supercharge it, fire on a northern crater, and hopefully destroy Sephiroth. It seems like every time they try to use Mako or Materia as an explosive device, it's just going to end up killing the planet, though. Yeah, and the planet realizes this because it sends a bunch of weapons after it. <laughs> And everyone else also realizes that and is like, this is actually a bad plan. We need to go in there and probably stop them. So in a cool scene, you end up parachuting in into into Midgar. You fight through um, you fight through the train tunnels. You actually run into the Turks one last time and can't fight them. Mm. Or you can say no. And then the Turks yeah. go, yeah, you're right. Nobody's going to be paying us after this anyway. So whatever. Yeah. Um, no, I love that they look around and are like, you're right, this is stupid. Mm-hmm. And uh, during all this time, like uh, one of the weapons, a, a weapon called Diamond Weapon, is slowly walking towards the city. Uh, it fires a bunch of lasers at, at Midgar, just at the same time the Sister Ray fires at it. Uh, piercing Diamond Weapon and killing it, hitting the barrier and actually disabling it, but all the lasers that Diamond Weapon fired hit uh, the main Shinra Tower and completely murder Rufus. Mm-hmm. Like, Rufus is just watching on, just staring straight ahead with a smile on his face as the laser slams into his office and kills him. Yep. Uh, so, Shinra still, though, does exist because it turns out there's, you know, a few more execs that still are uh, are still hanging out. Uh, we we still, we learned that these execs still are hanging out because uh, K-Sith tells him about that. We learned who's been controlling K-Sith this entire time. It turns out Reeve has. Reeve, wow. the one good guy. He's like, yeah, look at that. Yeah. 
Anyways, I gotta evacuate everyone I possibly can from Bigard to Calm. Just go ahead and stop them. Do it. So you end up running into Heidegger and Scarlet and end up like murdering them. Uh, and then you end up running into Hojo. And Hojo's like, boy, I got some truth bombs to drop on you. <laughs> yeah, Hojo, what did you do? So first off, I'm going to completely overcharge what's left of the sister ray. It's going to pretty much blow up Midgar, but, you know, it'll fire off a really giant laser, and that's going to be cool. They're like, wait, the stop Sephiroth light. And he's like, oh, no, I want to help him out. Sephiroth's my son. Uh... And they're like, oh, no, like, jokingly, right? He's like, no, 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 I put a baby no. in a lady. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, who's the lady? So I was this lady named Lucretia. Hey, Vincey, you remember a lady named Lucretia, right? And Vince is like, that was my girlfriend. It's like, yeah, I know. Uh, and I was like, oh. Mm. <laughs> Anyways, I'm going to transform to a giant monster. And so you. Why? <laughs> yeah, just guns. <laughs> and so you, you end up killing Kojo. You disable the sister ray, uh, preventing Hojo's dumb blow up Midgar and blow up a hole in the planet to help out his son. Uh, Dumbass idea. And with the Northern Crater now disabled, you're like, all right, well, let's everyone go your separate ways. Go see your families, because the next day we're going to go in there and do this. And there's a good chance we're not coming back. So everyone goes and does that. Cloud and uh, Tifa have a tender moment because they're like, well, we got nobody. So we'll hang out with each other. Mm. Uh, basically, the Tifa's like, I thoroughly win the love triangle portion of this. <laughs> Suck it, Aerith. Yeah. Um. And they all fly off to the northern crater. Uh, so they descend into the crater, fight a bunch of horrific monsters, uh, fight another version of Genova, which is this time the final, final Genova, like actual main Genova body, which they destroy and it's gone for good. Possibly the best battle theme in the whole game. It secretly is. Everybody, everybody talks about um, the theme that's right after this, but uh-huh, but it's like. Mm-hmm. Like, for good reason. One-Winged Angel is, like, revolutionary in sound design for video games. Mm-hmm. But, like, in terms of just sheer composition, holy crap, Genova Absolute's so good. It really is. Oh, my God. I, I hope people who are listening to this are just downloading a Final Fantasy VII soundtrack. And just, like, I sure hope so. Because, boy, it is a high watermark yep. for this series. And a mm-hmm. series that has a lot of high watermarks when it comes to music, it turns out. Yeah. So they destroy all that. And they finally get to the get to Sephiroth and get ready to destroy him. Um, they see that he has now freed himself from his little ice cocoon, and in place of his half body, he has now grown a he's now grown a, a solitary wing. He well, actually, I think he has multiple wings here. I think he only becomes yeah. one wing later, but um, he has a bunch of wings, and he's just like. Floating around, Sephiroth's uh, theme of One Winged Angel starts playing, which is the only vocal track in the game. Yep. And a hell of a fight takes place, including a fight where he literally blows up the entire solar system with a meteor just to, sh- just to throw it on you. Yeah. Which Several is- times, if you let him. Yeah. Jupiter gets messed up multiple times. Yeah. Ugh, that's a- it is a hell of an attack, and it takes so long. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I, um, so when I did this, I actually just kind of cheesed the whole fight. Mm-hmm. Nice of uh, Huh? Nice of yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, uh, six times in a row. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which also takes a long time. Only, it only took three. 
It's a it's a ten minute summon if I remember correct. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not quite that much, but yeah, it's a lot. It's, it's a, lot a lot to watch three times in a row. It is. It is. Yeah, and um, so yeah, every you end up fighting Sephiroth and defeating him. He disintegrates, and that allows Holy to activate. You escape the Northern Crater and fly away as you see the basically the Holy magic, I guess, leave the crater and fly up to Meteor, which is now it might as well be like three miles above the Earth's surface at this point. Yeah. Uh, and it, the team looks, and it, it's about to crash into Midgar as well, which is very deliberate because that's, it would release the most amount of life streams if it did that. Right. Uh, and the team's looking on, it's like, is it actually going to stop it? It might be too late. We, we don't know. Mm -hmm. And as they watch this Meteor slowly comes in contact with the Earth, like it just flashes to white and the, the credits start playing. <laughs> yep. And you know, really, really good credits theme plays. But as we get to the end, we see a epilogue scene. We see what appears to be Red 13 and two other members of a species running through a forest. They run to the top of a mountaintop and they look over to see the remains of Midgar, now covered in lush wildlife and, and trees and whatnot, showing that, you know, it's unknown if humanity survived the event, but the planet itself did. So right. It's as good as the happy ending as you're going to get. The end. Great ending. <laughs> Great no, ending. No notes. <laughs> yeah, no, it it was one of the like most debated endings for years. Mm -hmm. Like, what does that mean? What happened? Yeah. Yeah, nobody knows. Well, we didn't know at the time, but nobody knows. Right. Nobody knows. And it's, I, it's just a, such a good way of doing it. Mm-hmm. I'm a really big fan of this thing of the theory that you don't have to wrap up every plot line or storyline. Not everything yeah. needs to be explained. The mystery box doesn't necessarily need to be opened. And sometimes it's very disappointing if it is. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of like, are we going to stop it? It's like, we don't know. Like we maybe stopped it. We maybe did not. All that right. matters in the end was the central core thesis of avalanche, which was, you know, making sure the planet survives by destroying right. Shinra. That's been accomplished. Whether yep. or not humanity was a casualty with that or not kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. But like it, Shinra and Genova were both stopped. The planet was not destroyed. Because like mm -hmm. Genova's plan was to consume all of the planet's life, leaving it a dead husk, and then to move on to the next. Mm -hmm. And that was prevented. Yeah. Yeah. So hell, hell of a way to end the game. And... Uh, a game whose story deserves all the praise in the world that it does. Yeah. And but then, like, even just to continue on discussing a freaking 25-year-old ending, <laughs> Sephiroth's purported plan, and again, was that actually his intent, or was it Genova driving him insane? He wanted to destroy humanity mm -hmm. to return the planet to itself. Yeah. And, like, maybe that succeeded actually maybe yeah it, it's this actually really strange thing where like sephiroth kind of like mentions that the cloud back in nibelheim but then later mm. he basically changes up it's like oh i'm gonna basically become a god right so like at what point does genova kind of like take over in his mind right yeah and yeah it did so did like sephiroth's original plan like you said did it actually succeed in the end so like it's mm. yeah it yeah, it's this really interesting, ambiguous ending. It really, really is. Yeah. And for the longest time, that's where Square left it. 
Mm-hmm. Because as is the tradition with most Final Fantasies, the next numbered se- in the number in the series, Final Fantasy VIII, was not going to continue the story. It was going to be its own separate bespoke thing, certainly influenced by the runaway success of Final Fantasy VII, but not necessarily going to be a follow-up to the story. Unfortunately, though, Square is not going to leave a good yeah. thing to lie. Mostly because they're going to make a sequel to Final Fantasy X that's going to be hugely successful. And once it is, they're going to go back and look at their most successful idea in Final Fantasy VII and go, what if we made a sequel that kind of threw out that really cool ending? Mm-hmm. And all the mystery. But you have a really cool answer to the mystery, at least, right? Square? We have no comment from Square Enix at this time. You're just, uh, we just hope that you enjoy this cool movie called Advent Children. It, it's about a virus. <laughs> <laughs> Sephiroth comes back. That's cool, right? Everyone yeah, loves Sephiroth. Sephiroth. You, guys, you guys love Sephiroth, right? <laughs> Nomura tells us you guys love Sephiroth. Therefore, please prepare for Sephiroth. Everyone's banging the table to say more Sephiroth. We have to give the people more Sephiroth. And that's going to be what we're going to talk about next episode is I watch an incredibly terrible movie and tell you all about it because we're going to talk yeah. about having children. Talk oh about the weird boy. anime OVA that's kind of a prequel to everything. And then if we have time, also talk about the actual video game prequel called Crisis Core. where we figure out, hey, what's up with Zach? What is he doing? How what is, is he, up with Zach? How does he fit into this? Spoiler, the answer is uh, he's a cool dude. He's a cool dude, it turns out. Um, surrounded by insane demigods. Yes, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Or Zach is a normal man in a crazy man's world. Yeah, pretty much. It's kind of his best quality. It kind of is. He's like, dude, the hell's up with this? This is wild. Ah, yes. But that'll be for next time. Alex, how are you feeling? I feel, I feel good. Final Mm -hmm. Fantasy VII is a hell of a game. It is. It is. I love talking about this game i could talk it's like not even my favorite final fantasy but man i could talk about this game to death unlike my favorite one honestly (laughs) fair enough (laughs) like because it's just there's so many layers to it it has such it's so important to video games as a whole and on top of it it's just it's just a really good game in of itself yeah and you know and like a lot of times when we do multi-part series on falling through plot holes the first game is going to be by far the best. Yeah, it turns out. Because, <laughs> boy, I cannot wait to talk about some real, real hot garbage after this. Oh, it's in there. Oh, it's in there. Oh, man, it's going to be so good. I can't wait. Oh, but yeah, we're, we're kind of already running a little bit late. But do you have any final thoughts before we go? Um, you know, people always forget how many uh, modes of transportation there are in Final Fantasy VII. Mm-hmm. Like, like I, I always forget that the car, there's a car. You get a car. The car's my favorite one because the car the, will eventually break down. Yeah. And like, it's programmed to break down at a certain point or if you drive it too long, for too long. So if yeah. you say drive it around randomly, you could actually really screw oh, yourself yeah, over. And yeah, then you just, you just don't have a car anymore. Yeah. Um, also, there's a part in that game where you ride a dolphin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you perform CPR on a girl, and then you have to have a dolphin perform tricks to get you to jump up past an electric fence that will kill you. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, I guess the, the point of, all, of bringing all that up is there was 
one, arguably two golden eras of Square where they just made a lot of games and just threw crap in. Mm-hmm. And like Final Fantasy VII has this really grand overarching plot and all this technological marvel and is like one of the most influential video games ever. But don't ever think that there isn't just random crap they threw into that game. Yeah, like it's kind of a casualty of like not wanting to spend six hours talking about this game. Yeah. But like, there's so much I cut out about like gold saucer in general, Mm -hmm. just, just gold saucer. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Or or, like the weird submarine battles you get into. Yeah. Or like, um, like the chocobo races that you have to do. Yeah. Or Or the, the real time strategy. There's like a, Oh yeah. There's like a lane based RTS. Mm-hmm. auto chess game in there there is yeah that like gets different battles and different rewards as you go through the game except yeah. you have to manually run all the way back after certain plot triggers in order to do them all so yeah everybody only does the first one and then the very last one and that's it yeah because they, they go away it turns out um yeah like there's there's so much in this game like it's it's insane the amount of like mini games and whatnot uh that yeah, it's like like I cut out actually a lot about Zach, mostly because we're going to technically talk about it in Crisis Core. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's just there's just so much. There's so much. I, there's God, there's a lot to that game. Oh, I love that game so much. But yeah. But yeah, next week we're going to be talking about all that. So hopefully you all will join us. Alex, I appreciate you doing this with me as always. Of course. And if you want more episodes of Fallen Through Plot Holes, you should go to ftp.podbean.com or search for Fallen Through Plot Holes on your podcast service of choice. Uh, Make sure to like, like, and subscribe and do all that because it helps discoverability and we like people listening to this. It's pretty cool when people listen to this. I work very hard on it. You do. So I just show up and talk. (laughs) I appreciate the work you put into it as well. Thank you. (laughs) But yeah, until next time, everybody. Take care. Take care.